Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. But finding what happened to prisoners in New Orleans is even more difficult. A makeshift prison has been set up in the Greyhound bus and train station in downtown New Orleans. It's being run by Burl Kane, the warden of the Angola prison, uh, which is the largest prison in this country, as well as prison guards from New York. The nearby prison, the Orleans jail, was flooded after the hurricane. What happened to the prisoners there and in other parish prisons in New Orleans, well, we spent a long time trying to find out. Yesterday, a writ of habeas corpus was filed in Louisiana for an accounting of the prisoners. One woman who has been working tirelessly since the hurricane and flood is Phyllis Mann. She's a defense attorney in Alexandria, Virginia, in Alexandria, Louisiana. Um, she yesterday uh, went to the Angola prison, where it's estimated something like 500 women were brought to this uh, men's prison after the hurricane. Uh, we welcome you to Democracy Now!, Phyllis Mann. Can you talk about the men and what happened in the Orleans jail? Sure. I, um, last week I interviewed 200 men who had been moved um, to Rapids Parish, um, to the sheriff's jail here from Orleans Parish. Um, and two of the men in particular told me a story that just was uh, almost unbelievable to me. These men were federal detainees, meaning that they had been arrested on federal charges and were being held in the local jail. And they had originally been housed in um, OPP, which is, actually stands for Old Parish Prison, um, there in Orleans on the federal tier. And as the water began rising, they were moved from that floor up to a higher floor. And ultimately, they were placed by the guards in a gymnasium area in the facility where they were locked in. Um, once the guards placed them there, they did not see any guards 
again. Some of the men um, that were on the same floor where they were were not in this open gymnasium area. They were in holding cells. And as the water began rising, it got higher and higher, and they'd been there about a day and a half with no food or water, and they had not seen any guards. And the water rose until it reached chest level. The men that were in the gymnasium were able to break the windows out of the gymnasium, and they literally swam out of that room to escape from the prison. But the men that were in the holding cells could not get out. And the, the men that I spoke to that were able to free themselves were very, very certain that the other men in those holding cells had drowned. These men that, um, that were able to free themselves literally, you know, swam out of the building and then found a guard to turn themselves into. And they were then placed on buses and brought from Orleans to Hunt Correctional Center, where they were given blankets and they basically slept on the hillside for another day or and into the following day when they were placed on buses and brought here to Rapids Parish. And again, the one of the many problems that we're facing and that I don't I don't know we have a solution to is until we can reconstruct the records of the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Department, we will not even know who was housed in the various Orleans Parish facilities. We're not going to know how many inmates did not make it out of those facilities. The Cows, Gusty Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism. Today's date... Thursday, August 27th, 2015, so I have been told uh, we should be back tomorrow. Uh, We will be all done. Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy, Stephen Kantrowitz's biography. Uh, We will be finishing it up and moving on to a new book starting next week. But tomorrow we'll be here, same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific certainly will be here for the compensatory call-in this Saturday. Uh, This Saturday happens to be, uh, it'll be 10 years to the day uh, of Hurricane Katrina, the breach of the levees uh, down in southern Louisiana. Certainly had an impact in Florida, throughout the Gulf Coast, Mississippi, uh, absolutely. Uh, We've been talking a lot about those events uh, a good bit this month. Uh, And there's been increasing dialogue all over the place um, leading up to, I'm sure, a lot of lot more dialogue on uh, Saturday and conversations. Uh, I have maintained this is an extremely important event. I've been glad to have guests uh, who participated or I won't say participated, I guess survived would be a better word uh, to have guests on who have uh, survived. This event, live to tell about it and have some incredible stories, uh, incredible uh, narratives of what they saw, what they had to do uh, to try to save their life uh, under just horrendous uh, conditions uh, through that first week back in September 2005. Uh, And doing some of my uh, research on the program, in fact, when we had Kimberly Rivers Roberts on the program, she is a survivor of the storm, the breach. She did the documentary film Trouble the Waters. She was with us. And she had the snippet in her documentary film about her brother who was in Orleans Parish Prison at the time of the storm. 
talks about the experience of being there, being trapped, them running out of food. Uh, he said that they resorted to eating toothpaste and paper uh, while they were stuck there. And the funny just said it was absolutely horrible. Uh, the conditions and people were just inmates were just literally losing their sanity uh, because they were in such uh, dire straits. Uh, but just that prompted me to, to kind of think back and do more probing. And there was quite a bit of information on what happened with some of the prisoners, some of the inmates uh, that were stuck uh, in those floodwaters, what happened when they were evacuated, what were the conditions uh, in the prison system. The ACL, uh, you released a pretty interesting report that I would encourage folks uh, to check out. It details a lot of information where they were able to go around and talk to a lot of the folks, the inmates uh, who were trapped just to get their side of the story and kind of put an investigation together. You can check it out online. Uh, one of the other documents that I found, uh, a book. Uh, this is from someone who also was stuck uh, in Orleans Parish Prison uh, Prison uh, in the aftermath of the levee breach and Hurricane Katrina. Uh, this person, psychiatric nurse uh, who worked at Orleans Parish, Parish Prison, uh, the house of detention, when Hurricane Katrina hit, uh, he actually was there with his elderly father uh, and describes the ordeal uh, of just trying to survive what they saw and just trying to hold out uh, under dire circumstances uh, at the Orleans Parish Prison uh, during the uh, first four or five days of the storm until they evacuated. Uh, great to have him on the program to kind of recount some of their experience and even to get his thoughts because he talks about the devastation that happened to his property and all of that, how the rebuilding went for him personally and what he thinks about how the city has progressed over the last 10 years. Uh, our guest, uh, the author of the book, Prisoners of Katrina, Stranded at Work in New Orleans Parish Prison. Joining us live, our guest, Mr. Gavin S. Johnson. Mr. Johnson, are you with us, sir? I am. Outstanding. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Thursday evening with us. Uh, for any of our listeners, this might be their first time hearing about you and your book. Anything that you think listeners should know about who you are and the work you do? Uh, well, I worked at the prison from uh, 2003 to 2009, um, uh, obviously before and after Katrina. Um my, I'm now in healthcare in a different sector, uh, more what they call general, um, uh, what they call it, an outback hospital, which is long-term acute care hospitalization. Um, the prison experience, obviously, uh, <laughs> was one I never uh, was expecting, or even uh, I don't think any of us were prepared for uh, what we went through. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's still, uh, my dad, unfortunately, uh, passed away this past November. At the age of 92, um, surviving that ordeal was, was pretty amazing. Um, he was a jazz musician in the city for, uh, for over 50 years, played with Harry Connick Jr. on his first album and uh, played the Bull Road for 38 years. And uh, just uh, about three years ago, had uh, just kind of at the age of 88, you know, uh, got to that point where I started having some dementia and went to uh, a nursing facility here in the city and uh, passed away in November. So, yeah, bring back a lot of memories here, uh, just uh, just thinking about it, for sure. Right on. Definitely appreciate you uh, recording your experience in the book and glad to have you with us to uh, kind of share your experience, what you, what you saw, what you and your dad survived during that week. Um, for 
listeners, I guess, folks who haven't seen you in the book, you have pictures and what have you. You are a white man, is that correct? I am, correct. I'm 43 years old, uh, born and raised in New Orleans, uh, went away to college in uh, Lafayette, um, came back, worked in the city for uh, a few years, and uh, at the urging of one of my mother's friends said, you'd probably be a pretty good nurse. Uh, I went back to nursing school uh, at Nunez uh, with the intent of... Uh, Kind of getting into pharmaceutical medical device sales was my was my plan there for a little while. And, uh, had uh, the recruiter, the, actually the medical director at the Orleans Parish Prison, that was doing a uh, recruiting at our nursing class for our, our last semester, and uh, I found it kind of interesting. And uh, that was my first job out of nursing school. So <laughs> working in the site too at the Orleans Parish Prison uh, was uh, pretty neat to say the least. <laughs> fascinating fascinating um before you uh joined us on the program did you just get finished uh hobnobbing with president obama down in the ninth ward it was uh, ironic i uh was going to do an evaluation at st bernard hospital uh last second one of my uh co-workers was on vacation this week and i went down uh uh judge perez and st claude cut over and got diverted they had it all blocked off so i had to go all the way down and kind of made my way around it, but I was listening to it on the radio, so yeah, quite interesting. <laughs> Fascinating. The, uh, for folks who uh, were not aware, President Obama was down uh, in the Ninth Ward today uh, doing uh, his speech on the uh, 10-year effort to uh, recover and commemorate the uh, incredible loss of life and property uh, back in 2005. You can check out the speech. I'm sure it's online, and people are giving their commentary and what have you. Um, I guess before I even get started, you're still in New Orleans, correct? I am. I live in, actually live in Kenner. Uh, grew up in Algiers, uh, went to school uh, in Algiers, went to Dallas South High School, like I said, and I uh, went off to college and came back. So, yeah, still in the area. Okay. Are you... Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going, are you participating in any of the, I don't know if it's correct to call them festivities, I'll say events, the events that are going on to commemorate, are you participating, are you done with all that, or what's, what's your uh, assessment? Yeah, actually, uh, ironically, I'm having foot surgery tomorrow. <laughs> I have a, uh, a bone spur on my foot that I'll, so I'll kind of be out of commission, but I'll definitely be watching. And I have been, I've done a couple of uh, magazine interviews and so forth. So, yeah, and I'm, uh, the book itself, I'm, you know, uh, pursuing possible uh, movie, TV, series kind of thing. So, yeah, I've been doing a lot the last few weeks, just, uh, you know, kind of, re-getting the story out there and, and talking to different people. So I'm all for it. That's all. Everything I've seen so far has been very positive. And, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, obviously, a lot of Internet coverage. Uh, funny how things uh, come full circle. The first text I ever sent was uh, on the second or third day when we were uh, stranded in the prison. There, I'd never, one of my coworkers, a nurse, was uh, jabbing at her phone. I didn't know what she was doing. Uh, I said, what are you doing? She was on sending the text and so I had no idea what that was and that was the first communication I had with my uh, then wife uh, like I said the third day after the storm <laughs> so with all the internet stuff now and all the stuff on TV and, and Facebook and all that it's uh, it's pretty interesting how, how it's all come full circle absolutely With as you said they have tons of coverage you can use the uh, hashtag Katrina 10 if you want to check out some of the coverage they have just uh, as much content as you want to read or listen to or watch or you can get your fill um, but one of the articles they were talking about that how this event happened 
before technology was as ubiquitous as it is now. Yeah, uh, and they were saying, I, that, yeah. I think a lot of people were like you, where that was their first text message, like where phones were in disarray and that sort of thing. I think it was a lot of people had that experience. Um, I guess to kind of go back with with the book to kind of walk through what your experience was, ask some questions and, and just kind of get your sure. thoughts on, on some of the uh, reports that have been written. Um, I guess to start, the sheriff of Orleans Parish, when the evacuation was given at the time, Mayor Ray Nagan, now federal prisoner, uh, he gave the mandatory evac first ever in the history of New Orleans mandatory evacuation uh, to get out of New Orleans. The storm is going to come. It's going to be really bad. Uh, they go to Sheriff of Orleans Parish, Marlon Gusman, and he says, when asked, what are we going to do about the prisoners? Are you going to evacuate them? What's the plan? He says, we're going to keep our prisoners where they belong, behind bars. Uh, did you hear the statement? What was your... What uh, was your... I did, and uh, I had actually worked a couple of hurricanes before, and I think the last one before that, my, my memory may be wrong, that was... Uh, Isaac, it may not have been Isaac, but Ivan, Ivan, Ivan was supposed to hit us dead on, and we were all at work, hunkered down, and it missed us completely. So, I think the the, the thought process there, I'm only, I can only assume, was that you know this was probably gonna gonna miss us. But I, I mean, as of Saturday, I, I had a bad feeling, you know, and I knew we all had to go to work, especially with you know as nurses with our license, you know, it wasn't uh, wasn't really an option for me. Um, I was in hindsight. <laughs> Would have, uh, would have been a better scenario, but, uh, you know, I had to kind of convince my uh, wife at the time and her family to, to get out of town. We had two small dogs, and I just got married, and, and, and then that's how I ended up calling my dad that Saturday. I said, hey, what are you doing? you got to get out of town. This is going to be bad. And uh, he was like, oh, I'm not going anywhere. He's 83 at the time, you know, and he's like, I was like, well, come with me. Stay in the prison. They're over there for civilians. We'll be there for day two at the most, and, you know, that'll be that. And, obviously the rest is history. So yeah, I just, I don't think, uh, you know, it, it definitely looked bad. Um, you know, I'm sure, uh, if he had a do over, he would have <laughs> evacuated everybody. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like I said, I wasn't, uh, wasn't there for those conversations, but I would, I would imagine at that point there was what 65 or 7,000 inmates. So I'm sure, uh, there was no plan in place to move that many inmates in, you know, a day or two. <laughs> was probably part of the thinking, you know, I'm, I can only assume. Mm. Wow. That, uh, at least from the reports that I have read that they did have offers, uh, from the department of corrections. To yeah, no, I, I heard the same. Oh, okay. To move some of the inmates yeah. and that was declined. It was, nope, we're going to keep them where they are. No yeah, big deal. Yeah, yeah. I can, I'm not a Louisiana resident, nor have I ever been, but I can corroborate just, uh, what you'd said before, uh, hurricane Ivan was the threat in 2004, a year before, uh, it did not hit New Orleans, did not cause any damage, no flooding, anything like that. And I think a lot of residents, hurricane warnings and what have you are so frequent in that area that I think for a lot of people, they've said consistently that you can't evacuate every time. Uh, I was there, <laughs> coincidentally, when Hurricane Ivan yeah. happened. I, we arrived in the city the day that people were leaving. It was horrendous uh, trying to exit. That alone, it was enough to discourage. If I lived there, it would be enough to discourage me from wanting to leave by car because it was so bad. The traffic was just, oh, it was atrocious. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's just, it's it's a lot. Like, for people who don't live there to factor in, like, why didn't people leave or what, you know, went into that decision, that is a big influencing factor. Uh, before I get to my next question, I just want to throw this in for, for fun. I told listeners before, during all of this at Hurricane Katrina, 
I was chilling mm-hmm. on the beach in Hawaii for the duration when all of this was going down. Um, <laughs> well, good bad day. At least somebody was. <laughs> amen. Amen. Um, one, one of the first things that stuck out to me in, in reading your text, you already mentioned you're working as a nurse, but you're working uh, in a psychiatric capacity, uh, helping folks with mental problems uh, in the prison. And you write, uh, open to lawsuits, and if things are not documented, a lawyer can use that against us. Most occurrences yeah. in corrections settings are not life-threatening, but the area I work in, psychiatry, is unique. People often try to kill themselves when they are in jail, so we take every threat seriously. If someone wants to take his or her own life, we don't want it to happen in jail. We have to protect those people from themselves no, as well no as others. And in light of all of the recent talk around Sandra Bland and these suspicious uh, deaths in custody, I thought, wow, that has a whole new uh, resonance now. Have you been paying attention to all of these events? And Absolutely. What's, yeah. What are your, what are your thoughts? Good question. It, uh, interesting, you know, I mean, uh, thank God for more coverage and more exposure and more of these stories coming to light. I mean, unfortunately it happened, uh, but uh, you know, as, as the technology evolved, even from 2005, sending my, you know, our first text to now, you know, I find it amazing that people still find it hard to do the right thing, you know, no matter what the situation, especially when, in a situation like that. I mean, you know, unfortunately, the mental health issue, especially in the state of Louisiana and in the city, is is dire, and there's they, you know, closed facilities, there's a lack of facilities, and you know, um, going to, having somebody go to the, being arrested and going to going to jail seems to be an unfortunate, uh, you know, circumstance of people. That I guess they just uh, feel like that's an easier route, you know. I mean, they, and and in my experiences in dealing, I mean, we did it. We made every effort, and and you know, I first started, I said it was easy. Had a a lot of detox people coming in that were, you know, habitual drinkers or drug addicts and they needed to be detoxed off. So, um, we saw a lot of that, but yeah, I saw a lot of schizophrenic, a lot of, um, yeah, any, every, just about every mental illness you can imagine. Um, you know, it's a problem nationwide. It's probably more of a problem, you know, down here, just, uh, the nature of, of the, uh, the community, but, uh, yeah. It's uh, you know, definitely interesting to see. Uh, you know, unfortunately, these situations happen. You hope that through uh, these situations, that you know, things get changed for the better. With your unique, <laughs> with your unique expertise, uh, with the Sandra Bland case, I know that one has gotten a lot more attention. Just, I don't know how much detail you know about it. Does it seem feasible to you that you know what they're reporting that she committed suicide and with this plastic uh, trash can liner and the way that they described it? Does that seem feasible? You know, I, I, I find it hard to believe. I mean, anything's possible, but I, I would, I would find it difficult to to believe. Um, you know that, but I mean, like I said, I guess anything's possible. Um, you know, people are they, when you're alone in the solitude like that. Uh, you definitely can think of ways to do things. So, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about the in particular that case. I mean, I saw the, the general stuff about it, but uh, yeah, I mean, I find that you know it had to be a major collaboration with a lot of people <laughs> to, to make that happen. But uh, you know, I guess I guess anything's possible. 
Hmm. With there have been other incidents uh, around the Sandra Bland case. There was a black female in Alabama uh, 24 hours after uh, Sandra Bland was reported to have committed suicide. Uh, uh, Kendra Darnell Chapman, she's in Alabama. Uh, she was reported to have committed suicide uh, within two to three hours uh, of being in custody. Uh, there was a case uh, last year in Missouri, same circumstances, Kimberly Randall King, where she allegedly or reported reportedly committed suicide within two to three hours of being in custody. And a lot of people were saying, wow, that's such a, a short period of time to be detained to end up becoming that self-destructive does that what it what yeah, while people the reality of, of being there in prison i've seen it with people they just they break down pretty quickly i mean they make rash decisions yeah i mean most of the time and, and just from my experience and what i've seen and heard people that actually do it don't say anything and the ones that are screaming out, i'm going to kill myself i'm going to kill myself didn't really attempt to it was more of a you know a plea for attention but I mean, yeah, I've seen, you know, I've seen and heard of it. It's you know, people, or you know, they might be in there for a third strike, or they know that you know, third time for a DWI, or they're going to spend some time in jail. It just depends. I mean, everybody. It seems you know, there's so many shows on TV right now about you know, people being arrested and, and you know going through that process, and you can see them breaking down when they start. The reality starts hitting them that they're, you know, in the situation. Um, but that is that is interesting that the trend with the females I had, you know hadn't really thought about it. But yeah, I mean, huh. definitely have uh, seen people have seen her, you know, her happening, you know, relatively quickly. Because I guess they just you know they're in that situation, and I think you know actually they could be inebriated and then reality hitting them, and or they could be inebriated and try to do it. You know, they, they, on the least look at what I did, uh, you know, all, everybody was screaming before they came in, so you try to catch as much of that, you know, on the front end um, before, you know, they ever got to that situation. Hmm. According to uh, some of the reports that are online, uh, the New Orleans or the Orleans Parish Prison, uh, they have had a running problem uh, with suicides of inmates. Uh, one of the reports that I read, they had uh, 44 inmate suicides uh, since Katrina. Um, I know you said you no longer work there as of 2009, but in the... Yeah, wow. Well, it seems awfully high. Uh, when I was there, there was four or five incidents where we, you know, it happened um, that, uh, that, I, that I actually saw, but uh, yeah, 44 seems awfully high. I don't, that, that I don't, I couldn't say yeah or me to. I mean, uh, so from from I was from 2003 to 2009, like I think it was either four or five incidents um, where that had happened. Okay. Progressing uh, to the storm. So you've already kind of laid out some of the groundwork. You didn't have an option uh, to, you know, hey, I'm not going to work, uh, go to work. Uh, your license, you have to be there. Your father, he's uh, 83 saying he's not going to leave so you say hey dad come with me to the prison there were other uh prison employees you document in the text who uh brought their family uh loved ones yeah uh, to the yeah prison. there was a correct yes mm-hmm. okay uh so you get there uh sunday things are calm at first it's not raining it's you know not really that bad people are just kind of hearing uh reports about you know what's going down what's going to happen that sort of thing uh, at what point did things start setting in? It, it kind of getting serious. It was strange. The, the storm passed, and 
I had actually, I had my dad was driving at the time, probably was borderline, shouldn't have been driving, but I had him meet me. I went to his house, followed him down to his apartment, and he followed me downtown. We parked in the, got there kind of early, I tried to park in the highest point of the lot, just in any event it might flood, which it really wasn't. But after the storm had passed, there was probably three or four feet of water in the street surrounding you know, the entire facility. And then, you know, 12 hours ago, I could see the water rise, and then the next morning, water was double in size, but we didn't get the information that the levees had actually broken until around that time. And then, yeah, I mean, it was bizarre because there was not a cloud in the sky. It was hot as hell. <laughs> There's a lack of a better word, and, and we were just surrounded by water, but the water kept rising. Um, it didn't rise as fast as you might, might think in that spot, but it just... You know, the time just crept by, but, you know, I was constantly kind of looking out the, the bars of the, of the HOD building. It was, it was kind of a mesh and then bars kind of set up that you could see. Um, and then I slowly watched over the days my car go under Well, my car it flooded all the way up to about six inches of the roof, and my dad's was completely covered by water by the time we uh, uh, were evacuated. Yeah, uh, that <laughs> that point right there, uh, I think several point uh, several people uh, have kind of pointed that out. That the storm, it, number one, the storm missed uh, New Orleans. They did not take a direct hit, and then yeah. uh, two, a lot of people were even in like mainstream outlets, New York Times. They were saying that you know, hey, the storm has passed. Uh, you know, some some buildings got a little bit of damage, some broken windows, a little bit of glass, but you know, all things considered, not so bad. Moving forward, uh, and a lot of people did not realize until like Tuesday that oh man, this is way worse than what we thought the levee. Right, was. no, and it, yeah, and we started hearing. Obviously, everybody that was here locally, and radio was the only communication we had, and then people calling in from their attics or their roofs, you know, screaming and help, and and then you know, then we started. Yeah, you know, as the, as it, I mean, the, the heat was just in the, the. What happened was on the. That timeline, it was at night, the Monday night, Tuesday, early Tuesday, the, the generators actually flooded. So the power was completely out. Um, and as you know, in prison, there's no really windows. They had these little small strips, probably four inches uh, by, I don't know, four feet, um, that were busted out to try to get some air circulating. But, uh, yeah, the power we lost power pretty quickly, and it was uh, pretty about awful. Uh, after that, from a heat standpoint, and the, and the stench and the sewage backed up, and yeah, it was just uh, it was pretty bad. And, and the HOD building I was in actually has what they call a, a sally port, which is the first level. So of all the, we were the last one to be evacuated because we were the we were flooded, but we were we were flooded on the on the floors below, you know, where we were. Whereas the other, you know, the Temple of Building and OPP, they were all flooded pretty much immediately. You know, that's what they had to, the areas in the chest high water and, you know, all that stuff. Wow. But, uh, yeah. Just for listeners, number one, that heat is so important because uh, that's something that I, I, it's been emphasized by people, uh, people that were there and, and rescuers, just the uh, incredible heat. I think folks have uh, just mentioned that that summer on the whole uh, had a lot of record uh, record heat uh, for New Orleans. And during that week, it just the heat was unbearable. Uh, I think that's significant because I suspect that that probably or it's not even I suspect that's just science. I know that that contributed to a lot of 
deaths uh, during that week because a lot of people lost power before the storm even hit. A lot of people lost power on Sunday. So they were four, five a week without uh, no, no question. Uh, it was it was a, a pretty wild scene by like the third day. Uh, I mean, I was, you know, my dad would, you know, we, obviously I had to work and we were, obviously we got word that they were starting to evacuate, you know, the prison, um, basically, I think it was six or eight inmates at a time by boat to the Broadway Bridge. And, uh, you know, we kept being told, we're moving, we're moving soon, we're moving soon. And then I think it was Wednesday, helicopters were flying over and they started dropping MREs on our, on the roof where we were. The way the HOD building is, it's a 10-story building, but out to the side over where the side board is, there's a roof that some people were, they were actually outside versus being an employee, you know, being inside because it was hotter inside than it was outside, even though the sun was <laughs> being down. But when they started dropping MREs on the roof, I knew, I was like, this is not good. Wow. <laughs> not, not especially when they started telling us we were going to be evacuated, you know, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, and this, you know, Wednesday afternoon, they started dropping MREs in the water. You know, on the roof of, the, of where we were, I mean, we were probably in a little trouble. <laughs> How many inmates were in uh, your building specifically? There were typically, let's see, floors uh, three through ten, approximately. I'd say ninety to a hundred per floor, so somewhere in the eight hundred range. Wow. Yeah, six, seven, fifty to nine hundred. Yeah, yeah, um, pretty, uh, pretty substantial. Like I said, we were the last ones evacuated um on that friday and actually there was a a group of, of us and my dad was elderly and they had a handful of other uh nurses or, or employees that had sick family members with them and we actually we had one lady that needed dialysis she was she didn't look good she was going to make it um but we were actually evacuated out through the sally port one of the first ones out of that building to the Brushery Bridge. It was uh, elderly and sick first. Any of the elderly civilians that were there, you know, after all the prisoners were evacuated out of the building, that was part of the frustration. Some of the, the civilians couldn't understand why the prisoners were being evacuated first and, and employees and, and civilians last. But I mean, it was obviously it was safety reasons, you know, was number one priority. But uh, yeah, once we, we finally got to that point, it was, uh, <laughs> we had one lady, like I said, she was on, she was a, uh, uh, Dallas's patient, and she probably, I mean, she looked like she had put on 20, 30 pounds of fluid in the time of being there on Sunday to the time we evacuated on Friday. Wow. Um, yeah. Lots of lose a toe. Yeah, all kind of stuff. <laughs> wow. And it was lots of that all throughout. That's why I said that that death toll, in my opinion, it, it just, it cannot be accurate at 1800 because you had lots of I other things. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I agree. You had lots of other yeah. things happening that were contributing to deaths of people, even before the storm. Like I said, just that electricity going out, that's people that are on respirator, dialysis machines, and those type of things. Mm -hmm. They're going to be starting to go. I'm sure you had people start to die before the storm even hit, much less the levees coming and all that that added. I mean, it's just no way. That's just yeah. simple. Yeah, I don't know. And, uh, you know, my dad, that was like, my, you know, like in the book, I probably, I mean, my dad, I was just petrified he was going to die in there, you know. <laughs> I clearly, if he did, I was going to have to leave him behind, you know, in part of evacuation, which I don't even know what I would have did if that would have happened. I don't know what I <laughs> probably had to, you know, I don't know what I would die. It's cringy even thinking about it, but, you know, he was, uh, I remember fanning him for hours, just 
trying to keep him somewhat cool. And I'm scared he was going to die in there. Yeah. Wow. He blew that horn all of them years. I think, uh, I think I kept his lungs pretty strong. So. <laughs> wow. Um, With... How were the how were the uh, just the behavior of the inmates like from the beginning when like that Sunday when it's just a storm and people are thinking this is just going to be another typical storm? How did their behavior change over the week? Yeah, I mean it was a pretty quick deterioration. I mean we, we did the best we could with what we had, and for the most part in the, in the HOD building, you know we we had it under control, and you know there were instances uh, not a lot of medical instances. We had a doctor Delia who actually recently passed away. It was a it was a great man. He uh, he saved, he saved a lot of lives. He, uh, a lot of people, were, you know, when, when the heat got that bad, had a lot of inmates that were having, you know, had asthma issues to begin with, a lot of asthma attacks, a lot of, uh, you know, um, diabetic issues that we treated. We actually had one nurse that, um, when they busted out the window, she was leaning out and kind of stepped down and cut her finger to the bone almost, and the, and the doctor, that was a pretty wild scene. We had a, the nurse was sitting there, and the doctor, we all helped her, helped him, but he basically stitched her finger up in front of about 50 civilians <laughs> and, uh, on the second floor where they were. And I kind of watched it, um, which you know, obviously you don't see every day. But, uh, yeah, she, that was kind of a, a freak, uh, freak accent there. But, yeah, no, I mean, there was a, a lot of medical issues that we, that we dealt with. One of the uh, inmates was going to a anaphylactic shock and uh, the, the Dr. Delio had the, it was pitch black in, in a lot of these instances, so not much light, and he had the EpiPen backwards, and he went to put it in the, in the inmate's leg to, you know, bring him out of the, the shock, and it actually went to his hand. Because <laughs> he, he had it facing the wrong way, he couldn't see, because they, they both kind of feel the same on both sides, and his hand went completely numb from the tips to about his elbow for a couple of hours, so he couldn't even <laughs> feel, his, feel his arm, and he he swam back and forth to all the buildings to help out with medical, you know, medical emergencies. It was uh, pretty remarkable. The water was was contaminated with oil and feces and all kind of all kind of stuff, as you can imagine. I, that's another point I've tried to emphasize as well. That probably also contributed to more deaths uh, that I don't think it's accurate to call it water. Uh, I've heard medical professionals refer to it as sewage, uh, toxic sludge, uh, that this is not like your pool or just going to hop in uh, for a nice swim somewhere. Nice. Oh, no, it was awful. Yeah, no, yeah. And Bob, we actually got that time we got evacuated to the. Uh, we had to get kind of through the sally port to get into the little boat. And uh, I uh, actually had to step into the water. As soon as I did, I just I got rid of my shoes. Well, like immediately. <laughs> I had a, I had a you know, pair of, of flip-flops that I ended up wearing once we got to the Broad Sea Bridge. But, yeah, that water was just no telling. I mean, mm. and yeah, anybody had a little crack in their foot or a split or anything, you know, it's probably... Uh, we actually had a deputy when we got to the bridge. He was diabetic, and he hadn't had the insulin in a couple of days. And he uh, he took his shoes off because he was all in that water walking around. And uh, when we uh, were helping him on the bridge, and it was hot, it was 105, whatever degrees, and when he took his shoe off, his, he said, yeah, I can't feel my toe. And his toe had basically opened up, and it was gangrene. And I just thought, I didn't want to tell him. I was like, let's just clean the best we could, but I, I figured he was probably going to lose it. And then, sure enough, I heard he ended up in Houston, and uh, I think he had to have part of his foot amputated. Mm. Um, after that, uh, yeah, so there's a 
and a lot of stuff. And uh, kind of fast forward, we got we got off the bus. I had never been on a helicopter before, uh, and we they, they about thirty of us piled in. You know, after being in there for almost six days, and everybody just looked half dead. And when we flew right over the Seventeenth Street Canal, we looked out and saw the the hole, and then we kind of circled around and landed at the airport, and that was even more chaotic as a scene I'd never in a million years could have imagined <laughs> I would have seen in person. Uh, the airport was just incredible. I was happy to be out of where we were, but when we got to the airport, it was just like from bad to worse almost. <laughs> wow. For uh, for folks that are listening, just for, this is called Orleans Parish Prison, but this is not a prison. This is like jail. This is for people that have been uh, arrested and some of them they're waiting trial or people that have misdemeanors like this is not yeah. we're not talking for the most part we're not talking about like felons and axe murders and things like that uh, which I think at least for me like reading some of this like that made it even worse because you had people like in this experience who got stuck here who like had like a traffic oh, yeah. fine yeah, or people that were arrested for drunk in public and yeah. ended up in a field in Angola from what I heard you know yes. I mean yeah no doubt uh they got some people that have some real, real raw deal for sure. <laughs> Katrina, I yeah. mean, I think they coined a phrase for this, calling it Katrina time, uh, because as you heard at the beginning, like paperwork got lost. So people that should have been released, like before the storm hit, ended up being confined for like 100 days, 107 days, no compensation. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was horrible. Horrible is not the yeah. word. That's all I can say. No, no, no question. There, there was an article, I think, in the World Historic Foundation did an article. Um, and they documented a lot of that, and you know they, they actually said at the end of the article that uh some a lot of families took that opportunity to sever ties with you know people that were in jail um because they couldn't be identified, you know which is pretty sad to think about it, but uh yeah it, it was any number of stories that uh that happened that you know it's pretty pretty hard to to imagine and I don't think anybody can even you know. Like I said, I knew second day into this, I was like, oh, I mean, this is like a thing, something out of a movie. <laughs> there it was. I mean, I just couldn't believe this thing was happening that fast. And, 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 and in this country, yeah, you never met anything like that could happen. Mm. You, uh, you wrote, this is on, well, I have the Kindle version, so I don't really know the page, but uh, you write, uh, talking about the inmates, uh, they all started yelling and chattering and asking all kinds of questions I couldn't answer. I finished passing the meds on the tier, and then I had to go down to the seventh floor, since that's where we keep some of the chronic psychiatric inmates. Those people are schizophrenics, bipolars, psychotics, or otherwise seriously mentally ill. Some are homeless, and others have families, but have been disowned. It's pretty sad to see, and I try to do what I can for them. Most of them are arrested for penny any stuff like obstruction, obstruction of a public sidewalk, trespassing, sleeping in a public park, public drunkenness, and things of that nature. The laws in New Orleans are capriciously enforced, and those people are easy targets. At least 90% of them are African American, and many have a history of alcohol or drug abuse. It is a common occurrence that in the city, if you're a black male and look a certain way, you have a good chance of getting arrested numerous times. It's sad. I read this and I thought, wow, this sounds a lot like what I've been hearing in Ferguson for the past year. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. I mean, I I believe 
you know, and unfortunately with Katrina, some of the positives, I think a lot of that has subsided. But then again, now you see it. Yeah, Ferguson, I mean, that's a good example. I mean, it's, it's still there, unfortunately. I think, at least in this, from what I can see in the city, that mentality has gotten better. It's still not, obviously, I don't think it'll, you know, it's not perfect. It may never change completely, but uh, I think, you know, that definitely, uh, I mean, I think the population, I don't work anymore, but I hear the population is about 1,500 versus it was six, 65 to 7,000 before the storm. So I think uh, there's efforts to make it a smaller, smaller jail or less, less of those type of arrests. But yeah, I saw it a lot. Um, so a story when what uh, a guy talked to me one time it was sad. A guy had a, a common name. He went in uh, and there was a guy who was harassing his wife. He went in and filed a complaint where he had the same first name, uh, same initial middle name, and same last name as a guy who wanted, was wanted for uh, some kind of gun charge. And the guy got arrested on the spot. It was in was in uh, the house of detention for weeks before they could figure out that he wasn't a guy. It was pretty sad. <laughs> so, yeah, I've seen, seen stories like that. Unfortunately, um, you know, hard to hard to even fathom. I can't imagine in that situation. So, yeah, I always try to do the best I could and, and you know, treat everybody, you know, as equally as, as I could uh, given those situations, you know. But those are the type of people that would typically say they're suicidal, which I can't really blame them. <laughs> if I was thrust into that position, you know, I don't know what I would, I don't know what I would do or say, you know. Hmm. What, what would your response be uh, if someone said, hey, in this sort of uh, exploitative uh, system uh, where we're going out and, and incarcerating 90%, at least 90% are black people uh, to say that, hey, anyone who is an employee in this sort of system you are practicing racism. You are exploiting an extremely weak and vulnerable population. Uh, what would your response be? Oh no! I mean, I wouldn't. I, I don't feel. I didn't feel that way. I wouldn't feel that way. I mean, you know, I, I kind of looked at myself as being a public service, serving the public. You know, unfortunately, um, that public obviously, you know, the the ratio is, is was was about ninety ten. You know, if I had to guess, um, I. I I can only speak from my personal experience that, you know, I did the best I could and treated everybody as, as fairly and equally as I could. Um, or just, you know, that's how I was raised. Uh, my mother, you know, I grew up in a you know, mixed neighborhood and, and my mother was from Chicago. Um, so it's a different culture uh, where she came from. My dad, like I said, he was from North Louisiana, came here. Uh, he was a lot older. Uh, um, he was a musician, came here for World War, uh, actually to work and, World War II came and went off to war and came back and was here ever since. So, you know, I, I, that I, would, I wouldn't agree with, but I could see where people, you know, might think that or say that. But from a personal standpoint, uh, you know, I definitely, that wasn't the case for me, you know. Okay. I can only, I didn't see, and then personally I never really saw any, you know, issues like that pop up or any scenario where I, I thought it was like, wow, you know, that shouldn't, that shouldn't have happened or that's, that's surprising. I mean, at least from the medical side, you know, um, that's what mostly we dealt with, you know. 
It, I mean, just in terms of not seeing anything, to me, it, it seems like you've already said it's it's the entire apparatus of this seems to be the indictment. If it is, in fact, that it's very easy to just go out and arrest these people for these little petty any crime and then predominantly, overwhelmingly black people, particularly if we're going to say one of the offenses is uh, alcohol in public with the amount of rampant drinking that happens in New Orleans and is even yeah. encouraged in public that you get all these black people locked up for these little nonsense uh, charges and then you get to rack up court fees and everything else to me I mean it's just it is the logic that this is an unjust system and the people that are yeah, yeah well I agree I actually seen you know, that was probably one of the positive trends I do believe it's gotten better I mean that's just from from what I've seen and, and people I know that still you know are associated with the facility and or in the city and law enforcement and so forth I mean um, I've seen it personally I've seen it seems like it's being better but like I said I'm I'm not in anymore. Um, I can only go by what I see or hear. And, you know, if anything, Katrina, you know, shed sh- a light on it and, and you know, uh, seems to me like it's getting better. But, you know, hmm. I'm sure there's people that disagree with that. <laughs> hmm. yeah. I'm uh, context of white supremacy. Again, our guest, Mr. Gavin S. Johnson, uh, talking about his book, Prisoners of Katrina. Um before I get, again, if folks uh, have any questions you'd like to ask Mr. Johnson about his experience or his thoughts on what's transpired over the last decade uh, down in New Orleans, feel free to chime in. I'll give out the number in a second. Uh, we talk a lot about metaphors. We do a lot of reading and different books and talking to authors. Uh, and I, I tell folks to kind of pay attention to the metaphors uh, that they use. You were writing about uh, solitary confinement uh, in Orleans Parish Prison. Uh, you wrote that the whole solitary confinement is where inmates go who get out of line, fight, or get caught doing something they're not supposed to, something they're not supposed to. The best way to describe it would be like sending your kid to his or her room for punishment. But in this case, they would be in the room the size of a closet with bars instead of a door. Uh, what would your response be to someone who said, hey, I do not think that that is a accurate, truthful metaphor to describe solitary confinement, the whole, like sending your child to his or her room? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, that, I, I never really, the tears of what they had, that usually those were for people that were, they had, were awaiting trial, that were, you know, violent, violent crimes, murders, and, and so forth. They had to actually segregate, uh, segregate them or, or, you know, move them to a different part of the population for fear of them being, you know, hurt or, or stabbed or killed or whatever. Um, that's, yes. Yeah, so and that part of, I really didn't see a whole lot of, um, those every once in a while, those people say they were suicidal. So they would come up to the site here and we would monitor them. But, uh, right, yeah, but, but, but um, this, the, the question okay. was, was just more to, uh, your comparing solitary confinement to a parent disciplining a child by sending them to their room. What is your response? People who say, hey, that is that is not an accurate comparison. Solitary confinement in no way, shape, or form is like being sent to your room as a child. Uh, you know, I've been mom so worse. <laughs> I would think, at least, you know. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you, could you just repeat it? Could you repeat what you said? I didn't hear what you said at first. I said it seemed like it'd probably be a lot worse, I would imagine. You know, um, being a child going to a room and you know, being going to solitary confinement, I mean, you gotta, you know, I would imagine just, uh, those, those people would have a lot to think about <laughs> given their situation, you know. Um, you, uh, I guess it, I don't know if it's really similar 
right now. I guess it is, but you huh. know, uh, I never been, so I don't know. I never was placed in the solitary confinement cells. So I can't really say. Are you aware uh, of the growing number of calls to eliminate solitary confinement? That this is cruel and unusual punishment, uh, and that this is the sort of thing that drives people uh, insane. Have you been seeing the growing calls to do away with this form of uh, punishing punishment? I've heard bits and pieces on the news, but no, I haven't really, you know, followed it closely. But yeah, I mean, it's it, it's probably just like you know the electric chair. I'm sure it's probably time to to change those things or you know move forward from those things. You know, uh, how effective they are. I guess it's I guess it's an individual thing. You know, if they're, if they're effective at all, you know, hard for me to say. I would imagine, uh, yeah, it would contribute to uh, a person really. <laughs> Going from bad to worse, you know. Um, yeah, I, I probably probably is time for for changing that. I would think. Hmm. You uh, you also wrote. You said during this this week being stranded at this prison, uh, as you might imagine, the toilet was not pleasant. And that's putting it mildly. I hate to say it, but I urinated in the sink. The circumstances made us all do things we wouldn't have normally done. Uh, can you recall like two? Other things that you did that week that you wouldn't have normally done, but you did. Uh, well, I had to when we when we went there. I packed up stuff here you know, for a day or two, and then brought out like a blow up bed sheet. And uh, at one point, the bathroom situation was so bad that I, that my father and I, I ripped the sheets in pieces, and we basically <laughs> had to go defecate in the sheet and tie it up and. You know, just thought of it. So that's that's probably the one thing that uh, <laughs> I would say I've never done before, and I'll hopefully never have to do again. Um, you know, and then dealing with my dad. I mean, like I said, I think he just he did wasn't gravity you know, getting the the gravity of the situation at first. You know, he kept saying, "When we're going home," and you know, I'm listening to the radio. He's kind of half, you know, half passing out from the evening sleep and then and you know, I told him I said you may not have a home address so and it may not your probably may not be there, I don't know. You know, it's kinda of one of those things just uh uh you know, so none of us all of us were kinda of just, you know, in shock as to you know how everything was was playing out. Wow. Wow. Do uh you have any information? Because I know the ACLU, Democracy Now, several other news outlets they reported uh, that there were 500 undocumented prisoners. Uh, the statements from Orleans Parish Prison immediately after the storm, they said that no prisoners uh, had escaped, that everyone was accounted for, nobody got away. Um, the ACLU, Democracy Now!, other news outlets, they said that uh, they had about 500 unaccounted for prisoners. Did you have any you have any, any knowledge if, if there were folks missing or anything like that? You know, it- not in my the way the all building was the building I was in the HOD building was constructed. It was the only one that was like the first level was like what they call a salad floor where they made deliveries and all that. So we weren't on that first floor. The way our building was constructed, I don't see that could how that could happen. I didn't see that. Or I didn't hear anybody from all particular building. Um, you know, you heard the rumors from the some of the other ones, but I didn't witness you know actually anybody from where I was. Um, we were more about uh, like we had, you know, we had a set group of nurses and some doctors that were there, and we actually had uh, a psychiatric inmate that we tried to get to charity um, by boat because he was so in such bad shape. Um, we wanted to get boat for blood pressure compared to get a reading on, and uh, we actually turned away to bring him back. 
and he was part of the evacuation. Uh, luckily for him, he was, a, he was a younger guy. I think if he'd have been an older guy, he wouldn't have made it. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I personally did not see any of that or, or, or in my building, the building I was in, um, seeing any of that. Um, from the standpoint, I just structured the way the ball building was constructed. I, I don't see how that would have been, been possible. Huh. Um, some of the other buildings, you know, the other on that first floor like that, I could kind of see maybe. You know, but uh, from where we were, we had to jump out to get out. So, like I said, the way uh, ours is more of a uh, a vertical building. Most of the other yeah, facilities within the complex are more were more horizontal. We had the main one that was vertical. I see. I see. What uh, before I get one of the folks in who. Uh who had a question. Uh, there were reports, uh, some people were saying that they saw bodies floating. Uh, the BBC did a whole report. They did a documentary film uh, on this, which is the same title of your book, uh, Prisoners of Katrina. And then they also uh, had news reports just on the, the inmates who were stuck at Orleans Parish uh, prison. Uh, prison. And uh, in their report, they had inmates who reported that they saw uh, bodies floating in the prison, that people died there. Anybody in your prison, did you see uh, any deaths um, in, in your facility? No. Um, when we got to the Broad Street Bridge, uh, when we were evacuated, uh, you could look down. I don't remember how, just not Gal. There's one of the streets that runs parallel to Tulane uh, Avenue. It looked like I saw somebody kind of floating, but... Uh, no, I didn't hear. When I heard a lot at night, there was a lot of, I didn't, at the time, didn't know there was a lot of gunfire, just, just rapid gunfire, but come to find out later, it was actually rubber bullets that they were using to, you know, stop from, uh, inmates from escaping. So that's the only thing I heard at night. I didn't see. It was pretty, it was the lighting situation was pretty, pretty, you know, we lost power so fast that at night you couldn't see it. You couldn't see two feet in front of you unless you had a flashlight. So, like I said, our building, we were, the civilian area was contained, and then when I worked up on the 10th floor, you know, we were anywhere between 10 and 3 handling medical emergencies. So um, I didn't have a really whole lot of time to kind of see out, other than watching my car go in the water, <laughs> my dad's car go in the water. But I didn't see any, any prisoners or shooting like that floating. Uh, personally, I didn't. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I also thought uh, it was important just with uh the prison situation again i'm going to get calls i see people uh who dialed in who have uh who have hands up and everything i make sure i'll get your calls as well um before i get to those folks um i guess number one how long did it actually take before you were able to get back to new orleans you you got out a friend picked you up you eventually went with your wife to paris texas how long before you were able to return to yeah. new orleans uh, it was, it was a funny story. She, uh, got, not funny story, but she got, um, called back. She's a school teacher at the time. And, uh, I called my old boss on a whim. Not, I mean, the jail was, was flooded. I didn't think there was any way we were going to go back there, but I called him once she got the word to come back to, to go to school. I called him and he goes, well, we actually had 70, 72 nurses before the storm. And so they were going to bring back 10 to, to get it restarted. And, uh, I said, hey, he said, you interested? I said, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll be back. And because on a personal note, my wife and I were going to through fertility treatment. So we had the, the insurance through the jail or through the city of New Orleans. So I kind of was motivated to go back to work because we, we were literally about to do the second try and Katrina hit. So we, uh, yeah, I came back. I worked crazy. I when I worked the night shift. Uh, first time in my career, worked seven nights at seven in the morning. 
and we did a lot of cleanup and and once they got it established, uh yeah, we had to so it was probably and then they opened up that that one portion of the of uh, the jail at the Greyhound bus station. Um and we came back and started cleaning up a lot and they opened up uh H O D soon after that. And then yeah, it was just a slow slow uh, progression after that. They put some these uh, federal tents up that they use. I actually think they still might be there. Um Across from the HOD building, I think a lot of those buildings are closed. They're about to open up a new facility, from what I've heard. Uh, so, yeah, I was. Uh, That's such a, a, a intimate detail. Like you included that in the book about you know you and your concern number one about the fertility clinic and if it was submerged and what happened and you know how you all was, yeah. proceed with your second <laughs> yeah. attempt. Why did you uh, include that in the book? That's such an intimate detail. Uh, you know, I just, I, I wanted full disclosure as far as my experience and what I went through with my dad and, and, um, I just felt like I got me, I told the story exactly how it happened, you know, for me and my dad. Um, you know, unfortunately I married him more, but, uh, you know, uh, it was part of the story. It was part of the part of the story. Cause like I said, I, you know, my first communication after the storm was with my wife at the time was through the text. <laughs> so, and that was part of the, you know, just kind of felt like, because, you know, we were hearing stories out in New Orleans East that, you know, the East was devastated and actually had deputies that were really saying their families were at home. And one, one at one point, one of the deputies heard his wife on the phone and called in WWL pleading that they were strapped, you know, trapped in their attic and the water was up to their, you know, chest. So hmm. it was just a full disclosure thing. I felt like, I, you know, it's exactly... Everything I said is exactly how I went down, um, you know, for me personally, for my father. I don't, I don't know if you've heard them or not, but I, I uh, saw today that several different sites, they uh, had made like a montage of those different 911 calls of people that were stuck in their attic and what have you. Uh, I think some of these had been available before. Some of them are in different documentaries. I had heard some before. Uh, some of them are, you know, it's, uh, it's about as macabre as it gets. Uh, and then the yeah. photos as well, in terms of just seeing different bodies and what have you. They've rehashed a lot of those photos, uh, and that's it's important. I, I totally understand that because there was a just enormous death, startling death, is a huge part of this story, and the enormous loss of life. Um, but part of me is like some of this seems a bit. Uh, it seems almost like necrophilia. Uh, like I don't. I'm imagining if it was me, if I was one of those people that was stuck in my attic and you had a lot of people that died in their attic, either from the heat yeah. or they drowned or whatever the case may be, no water. Uh, if it was me and I died in my attic, would I want them like reminiscing and playing my 911 call 10 years down the road or every anniversary? Yeah, yeah I would want to agree with you there. It would probably be pretty tough. <laughs> like, uh, probably not, yeah. I just it's just the thought, like I said, I understand it's important and the death was a huge part of it, but that I do think that's something that should be considered in the midst of all of this. With that I'll hit the line. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that's a tough that's a tough call there. Uh, it was probably same time that I agree with you there. I don't know if you want to rehash that. Mm. Sure. The uh person well, I guess before I get the caller, the new number new number is six four one seven one five three six four zero and the same old code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate 
uh, person who dialed in last four digits seven seven zero three seven seven zero three did you have a question for mr gavin s johnson oops uh <laughs> they uh disappeared okay uh person who dialed in last four digits oh seven eight six oh seven eight six did you have a question for mr johnson Is that me? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Uh, thanks, Mr. Johnson, for being on the program. Sure. And Gus, thanks for the platform. Uh, just a couple of questions quickly. Uh, first question, <clears throat> did your uh, father uh, talk to you uh, about the events of World War II? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. My, believe it or not, my dad was a little unique. He was... Uh, in Reims, France, for most of the time, he was a, a musician. He played. He played for the troops when they came. He didn't see a whole lot of action. He saw some nights when he first um, went there, but he was primarily his. He was fairly lucky. Did you catch? He, the had to, he basically time? entertained the. He entertained the troops when they were on break, or you know, uh, not uh, not fighting when they rotated through. But yeah, he was in Reims, France for I think three and a half years. And it's for you. Um, you said you were from uh, the town of Algiers, born and raised. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you share your thoughts on the uh, black people being stopped from entering, fleeing the floodwaters? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd heard that on the bridge. That was kind uh, of interesting, you know. I mean, definitely a shock. Uh, like I said, I was stuck at the prison, so I didn't see it firsthand and heard about it after the fact, but yeah, I mean, pretty, pretty wrong. I mean, <laughs> no way, no way, no two ways around that. Uh, definitely, uh, didn't seem, uh, fair to say the least. Mm, that's, okay. Uh, next question. Do you, uh, agree? They said it was about 2,000 deaths, uh, that was reported, uh, throughout this whole, uh, um, throughout this whole storm, uh, mm-hmm. do you agree with the amount of deaths that's being reported? I was, if I'm, yeah, I mean, I would say it was more. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't have any proof of that or anything to base it off of, but I was just a little more, given the way that, you know, some of the floodwaters came in and went back out and, you know, um, I would speculate it would be quite a bit more. Mm. Okay, last question. Um, do you know any of the white vigilantes uh, that were taking up arms in uh, New Orleans at the time? No, no. I mean, uh, I, I heard rumors at the Dome that there was military people there, you know, trying to keep order. But no, not personally. Um, I uh, I had lived in um, see from. When the college '95 came back and was in Algiers Point for a couple of years, but I moved to Metairie um, late late uh, 1990s, early 2000, and then to Kenner in uh, 2003 when I got married. But uh, okay. yeah, no, no, um, not personally. Okay, uh, I would like to thank you for coming on the program. And Gus, I have noticed the use of the word fair twice. I have it noted. And uh, I noticed a lot of laughing. Um, you can uh, save your commentary that. for uh, afterwards. 
just trying to get as many okay, questions through as I can. For sure, for sure. Appreciate it. Uh, the person at 7703-7703, does you have a question for Mr. Johnson? How are you doing today, Gus? This is Thomas Smith in New York. Oh, right on. Oh, I'm hearing the, the program in the background. It sounds like... Uh, okay, try it again. Go ahead, Thomas. Oh wow, your volume went way down. Yeah, I can barely hear you. Yeah, your you were fine at first, and then the volume dropped really, really low. Should I be heard? Much better. How are you guys? Thomas Smith from New York. Um, using a new phone, so I use someone else's phone, so I don't, you know, really know how to use it as well. But either way, um, I have a few questions for the guests. Good evening, sir. Thank you for coming on the show this evening. Sure, no problem. Um. Um, during Hurricane Katrina, um, do you think that the levees were blown intentionally? Uh, you know, I mean, it's possible. <laughs> I, I, I like God, I not think so, but, uh, you know, I guess it's possible. Um, yeah. say, I definitely couldn't rule it out. Um, uh, good, 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 good question, though. I, I don't, you know, I don't think so, but it would surprise me if they found proof that they did. <laughs> You know, um, hard even fathom that to be honest with you. I guess okay, um, as a mental health practitioner, um, do you? Hello. Yes, sir. Yes. We can hear you. Okay, as a mental health practitioner, do you think that there's uh, more mental health issues in the black community or in the white community? Uh, honestly, with the with the from what I can see in just the in the last few years. Um, with the, the the abuse of prescription pills, I mean, and, and there's probably more in black media, but I, I would say it's, it's pretty close. I mean, you know, um, unfortunately, there seems to be a link between, you know, drug use over years and mental illness. So um, I would, I don't know, provide a guess, you know, 60-40. It definitely been more, seems to be more... Uh, of a premise with the white community with, with the uh, abuse of pre- prescription pills well, I can see just watching the news and you know hearing things but uh, oh, probably still okay. you know, I'd say it's still probably more in the black community yeah. more in the black community you're saying yeah probably a little more yeah definitely okay do you think that the treatment is the same um, in both communities as well like um, do you think that blacks are given the same treatment mental illness problems as whites? Uh, it depends on the setting. I mean, obviously, uh, if, if it's in a, in a incarceration setting, I'd, I'd say it's probably pretty similar. Uh, but if people out in the community have, they have the funds to get treated, then, you know, obviously people with more money probably get better treatment, unfortunately. Um, oh, that's going to be speculation on my part, but that's probably would be, you know, my guess. Okay, I think that would um, switch the numbers somewhere if whites weren't being treated in the same manner as blacks. My last question for you is, um, and this is sort of unrelated to, to Katrina. However, um, I do think Hurricane Katrina was a huge act of racism. Um, so um, have you ever heard you word, uh, any white person ever use the word nigger? Um, what do you mean, like just joking around or 
I mean, uh, jerk and low. I mean, you have a joke, that'd be great. But uh, do you know any bigger jokes? I mean, I, I just wanted to know if you heard anyone ever say the word. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, yeah, I have, yeah. I personally don't, but I mean, I've heard it, yeah, sure. Yeah, my, my, like I so said, my mother was from Chicago. Um, my grandmother was uh, English World War Two. Um, my mother worked in you know downtown and had a, a, vast, a vast variety of friends and you know culturally was always exposing me to just about everything. So she just oh. thought that was you know. Uh, I asked you a question because I wanted so, you to um, to give me the defin your definition of what a nigger is. Uh, well, you know, I'll answer that one, man. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, this is like if you listen to your kid came in and sure. you said, Dad, I heard someone say the word nigger. What does that mean? Well, can you give me a definition for that? Uh, not really. Well, you no, say I mean, no? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't really know what to say. I mean, uh, there's a, a definition that I never really thought about a definition for it. Um, you got me there. Okay, I will not answer that one. <laughs> that's good enough. Uh, can you just, uh, before I go, thank you, Gus, for taking my call. Can you tell us a couple of those jokes that um, you heard, please? Um, just just so we know, because we usually don't get a chance to hear them as black people. So can you tell us a few? You seem like you have a pretty good recollection of them. Oh, Mr. Johnson, are you still with us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a Gus, right? Oh, no, he was talking to you, sir. I mean, no, I don't, I don't have any jokes that, that I know of offhand. Of course. All right. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, thanks, Gus, for taking the call. Mm-hmm. For sure. Good to hear from you. Uh, Brother Vogue, do not wait till the last minute if you have uh, a question. Um, I did the previous uh, caller that dialed in uh, his question... He was asking about Algiers Point. Um, he was asking if you knew any of the, or if you knew about that incident. I think he was asking if you knew about that incident where they were uh, blocking black people from entering to escape. And you mentioned the Crescent City Bridge incident. Those are two separate That's what incidents. That's I thought he was talking about. Yeah, and uh, I thought he was talking about the only incident I heard about, I remember, was when people were trying to walk across the bridge to the West Bank. Right. That, yeah. that did happen. Uh, we talked about that. And even to your point about you saying that that was unjust, there was uh, a suit filed that that was a civil rights violation and they did not win. Uh, that was upheld as a just act, having those enforcement officers that's, pull shotguns on U.S. citizens and tell them that, that they could yeah, not flee. Yeah. Uh, that was upheld in court. And uh, that's a whole nother story. Anyway, <laughs> there was also. Yeah, that's surprising. Yeah, that's uh, surprising. Yeah, I did not know that. Uh, I did not find it that surprising, but uh, the, uh, the really? <laughs> not, I mean, you know, this this it would have been surprising only if the storm and the response to the storm had been different. Then it would have been surprising. But giving everything right, that happened right. with all of that, I'm not. Well, surprised. that's true. I mean, yeah, it was like so chaotic. I guess you know, it was pretty much martial law. I guess everybody thought. You know, I don't know. We definitely, um, you know, in my situation, it was uh, ironic. I ended up at the airport. It was some mis- miscommunication. I could have uh, ended up in Homa on some, uh, there were some buses for us, but the way we, the way we got out in a way was 
uh, being directed. We were just kind of trying to get on the first helicopters, you know, and we, I think we got on about the sixth or seventh one that landed. We kind of had to wait in line on the, on the ridge, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I was, I, when we went to the airport, like I said, that they had it, it was, it was chaotic, but it had it fairly sealed off, you know, fairly under control, but it definitely was, uh, a different kind of uh, chaos than we were at the uh, at the prison. All right, that wasn't my my reasoning for why I wasn't surprised. But more importantly, um, that the Crescent City Bridge incident, trying to get into uh, Gretna, that was one incident. There was another incident in Algiers where white people, it was reported, also had guns. These were not enforcement officers. These were not police. These were just citizens, white people in Algiers. Uh, who had guns and they prohibited people from coming through Algiers to try to get to safety. Uh, and they have video of these people. Uh, you can see this on YouTube. Uh, AC Thompson went to this area. There are barbecues with white people in Algiers who bragged about killing black people uh, during this time. Wow. They said it was like uh, shooting pheasants uh, on camera. This is on this is on YouTube wow. right to this day where wow. they have this footage. Where wow, they go check that out. That, that, that's news to me. That's, that's pretty. That's pretty incredible. Wow. Oh, so you didn't that's know about hard, this? Hard to it's hard to fathom. No, I don't. I have no idea. That's hard okay. to fathom. I'll definitely go check that out. Yeah, some of this was. Did you see? I know there are a ton of documentaries on uh, the breach and everything. Did you see Spike Lee's documentary when the levees broke? Uh, when the levees broke? No, I did not. Okay, I did not. It's in there. I was going to ask. Do you with with all of the different content that has come out? Are there any? books or or films that you think you know give constructive information that you would recommend on all this i haven't yet and that's been surprising to me that that's why i mean my, with my story you know it's been a while i thought that you know uh, it would have kind of got some traction by now but i uh and it's kind of off the subject i don't know if you saw this have you, have you seen that state farm commercial where they talk about the past storms and they clearly left out Katrina. I thought it was remarkable. They went through each progression. They went to Andrew, uh, I forget which one else, and they went to Sandy, and then they said, stop State Farm, and I was in shock because I'm watching the commercial. They did not say one word about Katrina. And I just thought that was, like, shocking. I was like, this is just a concerted, I don't know if he's ever to suppress as much about it as possible. I don't know. It, It still baffles me today, you know. Although, the 10 year reunion, I've seen a ton of positives, um, you know, TV, internet and so forth. Uh, you know, I haven't, haven't dug into a whole lot of, a lot of negative, uh, but, uh, you know, I'll definitely be doing a little more, uh, research that and not heard that at all. I'll say how you can, those people are admitting that on camera and not arrested. <laughs> in I, years. I thought the same thing. I thought the same really? thing. And many other people have said the same thing. How can you brag about killing people on camera and there be no prosecution? How can uh, that happen? That, uh, that seems baffling to me. That's incredible. Context of white supremacy. Um, before I get to the other person that dialed in, um, at Orleans Parish prison um at this time i don't know if this is standard practice but when the threat of katrina was coming uh they moved some juveniles to this detention this was written up in the aclu report were you aware that there were uh juveniles who were being detained uh at opp during all of this this crisis at opp i did not i know they had uh, um you know they all they had a juvenile area within the system but uh as far as being moved to opp now i had no knowledge of that like I so said, we were, 
my story, we were pretty contained at HOD. I mean, we, we, we could see stuff out, but the way the building is constructed, we hear a lot of hearsay and stuff. Like I said, I heard a lot of, you know, explosion type things and gunshots at night, you know, more than day during the daytime, but I did not, uh, no, I had not heard that. Okay. So I don't, yeah. The, uh, it doesn't surprise me, but, you know, I definitely had not heard that. Okay. At uh, that ACLU report, they write uh, juveniles at Orleans Parish Prison. Uh, to this day, it's still unclear how many children were detained in OPP at the time of the storm. Uh, according to Sheriff's own statistics, over 300 children were transferred to OPP shortly before the storm from the city-run YSC alone. The Juvenile Justice Project of Louisiana estimates that the number was closer to 150. Neither figure includes juveniles at OPP who were being held and tried as adults. Following the storm, the JP, excuse me, JJPL interviewed dozens of boys and girls who were trapped in OPP during and after Katrina. Their experiences, though no different in many ways from that of the adult prisoners at the jail, are particularly troubling in light of their age and vulnerability. For all of the prisoners in OPP during the storm, it is worth asking why they were not evacuated when the threat posed by Katrina became widely known and Department of Corrections offered to assist. For the adult prisoners arrested on minor charges in the two days before the storm, it is also worth asking why those arrests were even made and whether it would have been prudent for the city to release such prisoners in order to allow them to evacuate the city with their families. Uh, I'll stop there. Do you have uh, any response on what they wrote, ACLU? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, I'm sure they, uh, first of all, have done well. But yeah, surprising. I, I didn't think it would be that, that many um, juveniles. I, I probably... In my time there, saw a handful. I didn't see a whole lot. Um, in my area where I worked, but uh, you know, three hundred sounds awfully high. Um, uh, you know, one fifty even sounds a little high, but I mean that's probably more. Uh, but yeah, no, I don't. I don't really have any knowledge on that that aspect of it. It was. I mean, that that facility. So it was at that point with the sixty-five to seven thousand inmates, it was such an expansive. Um, it was like a city within a city. I mean. When I told people after the fact that they had 70 nurses work there, they were shocked. Wow. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't think that uh, they had 70 nurses working at a, you know, at a jail, but yeah. Not, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of different clinics, a lot of different, uh, you know, the, the female population, the psychiatric population, and, and general population. And, you know, it was definitely a, um, it was definitely an expensive operation. And, well, the fact that they seem to have uh, streamlined and got a lot smaller is uh, a good thing. Hmm. That 300, uh, the estimate of 300 children, uh, again, that was according to the sheriff's own statistics that it was 300 children were transferred yeah. to OPP. So that's another one. Yeah, too, I, that, uh, I'm not, yeah, not disputing it. I just said, uh, yeah, I don't know. I had no knowledge of that. Um, I guess, yeah, that's surprising. It seems like a lot. Hold on. Um, you you wrote uh, in the book about one of the alleged prisoners that escaped that he apparently escaped got to Mississippi was caught after he killed somebody else. Did you like where did you hear that information? Like was that on television? Was that reported somewhere? Uh, but yeah, I think I heard that on, on TV. And then she, and then there was another story where well, what an inmate, but I heard what the, the uh, I guess a looter had shot a cop in the back of the head and ended up at uh, West Jeff um, being treated. You know. But uh, yeah, now I, any, any of those things I heard, yeah, I probably heard that on TV. Or 
chocolate. I like to think back. Um, I don't remember being told specifically about anybody at the facility. So, yeah, probably in doing my my research and, and gathering my information, um, maybe before I wrote the book, and I remember hearing a lot of that kind of stuff on TV. Right. I was I was concerned because there was a lot of that stuff on TV, but I don't know if you know or not, but I mean, a lot of that stuff turned out to be false. Uh, the reports, I mean, right, you had right, exactly, Ryan yeah. Williams making up stuff and uh, Eddie Compass even losing his job, former chief of police, uh, reporting all of these things about children being raped at the Superdome that turned out not to be true. Um, so I, I, and I've been telling listeners and going back and looking through all of this, that's one of the things that stands out, that they're just... There's so many lies that have been told about things that were happening. And I mean, these are important because all those rumors about, oh, they're raping babies at the Superdome. And they had one. They said yeah. that there was a prison, a prison break. The prisoners had escaped and they had stolen all the guns from the local pawn shops. This is uh, now Mayor uh, yeah. Landry said this. <laughs> that turned out not yeah. to be true. They said that there was a hostage takeover. I mean, they were just making up stuff left and right. Yeah. And putting out, And this was hampering yeah. rescue efforts because you had teams of people that were coming yeah. You had people that yeah. were coming in to help and they were hesitant because they were like, oh, my God, it's anarchy in the city. And then it turned out a lot of this stuff wasn't true. I looked to see if I could find that report about the guy killing someone in Mississippi and I couldn't find it. Um, I don't know if people that are listening. If you all can track it down, that would be great to me. That seems like the, the type of thing that would have gotten a lot of attention uh, just for people to be outraged or mad or somebody should have lost a job. I mean, that just seems like something that it should be easy to find. And I haven't been able to track it down. Um, did you have, I guess, any concerns in writing any of this? I know you wanted to give uh, the context, the ambiance of what was happening, what you were hearing, what you were thinking about. Did you have any concerns about putting any of this stuff down and saying, well, wait a minute, I could be reporting some of these rumors that turned out not to be true? Um, no, I mean, everything I, I... Well, it was, was, you know, as accurate as, as uh, I remember it, you know. Um, I, you know, that I try to tell, like I said, I try to tell it is, is uh, exact kind of, you know, through my eyes and kind of try to, have, like, have people understand, you know, what was actually happening and, you know, kind of made it on a personal level just because it was so unbelievably shocking that this was all going down, you know, the way it was going down. Plus, I had to deal with my father. You know, being in that situation was, uh, you know, you know uh, like I said, that everything that I put in there was, was true to my, is my best knowledge. Right. Uh, you, you write that you heard, uh, that it was coming across on the radio, uh, that they were, people were being raped at the Superdome and yeah. all of this, that is not accurate. And the police department has come out since as have many other outlets. And they have said that there is no evidence to support that anybody children or otherwise, uh, were raped at the Superdome. Uh, and that, that's why I was asking the question just because. No, I, yeah, we were having, yeah, we were all kind of stuff on the radio. I mean, it was, there was painting in such a horror story, even the convention center. I mean, you know, they were saying they were evacuating, People from there to Houston. We didn't know what Coast Guard was going to come to take people up and bring them to Houston by boat. I mean, we just heard all kind of rumors. It was, it was madness. And to be hear all that stuff and then be confined into inside that you know prison, waiting, just pleading and hoping to get get out of there and rescue. It was, it was daunting. <laughs> Definitely, uh, yeah. Uh, still hard to believe. Look back on and hard it's been ten years. Uh, Fast. Absolutely. Did you hear about the situation at Memorial Hospital uh, that ultimately ended up leading with uh, 
murder charges uh, being filed against yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, there are a lot of that. That I can't even fathom being in that situation just because of, of the you know the severity of the patients, you know, and, and then the, he felt the heat on top of that. Yeah, that that that's we were going through our own you know deal with being in you know in the prison, and, and I can't imagine what those doctors and nurses are going through there either. I, I, I can't even fathom. <laughs> Wow. Not can, but yeah, mine was a different different scale for sure. Did you have any thoughts? I know people talked a lot about Charity Hospital being closed down, and the new facility just opened up a few uh, weeks ago. Did you have any thoughts on whether or not that would be the constructive thing to do, closing down Charity Hospital? Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, surprising. Uh, I've been to the new facility. If you've seen it, it's uh, pretty remarkable. Um, it's uh, they spent uh, no, they they definitely didn't spare any expense on the new facility pretty <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it yet or, or been in there it's, it's quite expensive uh, but I, I I never really I had been to charity maybe a couple times in, in my life so I hadn't um, read a whole lot of you know, uh, it, it seems I mean it seems from that standpoint with the health care and, and everything that it could be for the better but I guess time will tell you know um, but yeah with a facility so historic is uh it's very hospital. Kind of, kind of hard to believe that uh, it, it never will uh, reopen. Mm. There were a lot of folks who were uh, concerned about that. They had to knock down uh, a lot of housing uh, and even some businesses uh, to build this new facility. Some of these houses were uh, had just been refurbished <laughs> with federal dollars, and then they came and knocked the stuff down to build this new facility. That caused a lot. It still has caused a lot of controversy. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, yeah, it definitely. Time will tell. I don't. I mean, yeah. It's, I remember when when they were clearing all that out. It was pretty remarkable to see it that much of an open area in the, in the heart of a of a major city. You know, definitely was uh, um, still is strange to see. Got like two lane avenues changed from you know before Katrina to now. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, with folks that are listening in, uh, we don't want folks to wait till the last minute. If you have a question uh, that you want to ask Mr. Johnson, you should go ahead uh, get your hand up uh, in the next. 60 seconds or so if you have a question you want to make sure uh, you ask uh, about anything we've talked about his experience uh, being trapped uh, behind bars uh, during uh, the storm and the flooding and and a week uh, with his dad and everything and getting all this out did you have uh, any difficulties in terms of uh, repair with your home like you mentioned that in the book how did you all work all that out with your home that had extensive damage yeah, we actually, uh, it was my wife and I and my two dogs, and we had one room of our condo that was not completely damaged, so we all lived in that room and really got the downstairs uh, up to the four-foot mark completely, you know, all new, everything, obviously. And uh, the the ceiling of the room in our bedroom, I had to be some sort of you know, mini-tornado something because when I came back in the first time to see it, like, there's a hole in the roof, and like the plaster was just shot all over the entire from the ceiling and over the entire room. Probably about a five foot hole in the ceiling. <laughs> and the little explosion went off. It was pretty pretty weird to see. <laughs> yeah, uh, I had obviously never seen anything like that before. <laughs> wow. It took about uh, I guess you know eight months or so for uh, our house was. Uh, we, we decided not to get a FEMA trailer. <laughs> Wow. Uh, with the end of our, our marriage, I'm sure. <laughs> but we, we sucked it up and put a, a window unit in, in the window and, uh, and just gutted it out. 
we watch the we watch the whole place get fixed up and redone. Wow. We actually lived with our in laws for a while, slept on the living room floor sometimes. I had a actually had a diabetic pug, believe it or not, at the time and uh she uh there was no vet services after I she needed insulin and uh yeah, I had to treat her. We had to put her in front of the a couple times she was gonna turn in blue and, and couldn't breathe, I had to go in the car and turn the A C on and put her in front of the A C for about forty five minutes before she <laughs> calmed down. But uh yeah, we, we kinda of bounced around with us having the in laws or in that one bedroom. We we took turns staying at the house where the other one would go to the, the in law to sleep a night, you know, and some normalcy. So yeah, it was uh it was a trying time after just being married a year and a half before, so you know, oh. not even a year and a half. Yeah. Did you all take advantage of the road home program or were the insurance companies were they helpful? We yeah, we did we kinda got the short end of that deal. Uh for whatever reason the the way ours condo we were two ten unit building we were structured. We got some money but it wasn't it wasn't uh, a whole lot. It was weird. Some people lived two doors down, got more than others. It was so. I think there was no rhyme or reason to any of that. I think uh, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we, we actually when we got evacuated to Paris, Texas. We, you know, we got the little, the little emergency fund and and the insurance. We, we unbeknownst to us, when we got married, we, we assumed and probably Aaron and I probably being young uh, that we had flood insurance and con- we had content insurance and the flood insurance. Well, we just assumed we did. There's a lesson learned there, too. You know, after the fact, we had to make a claim, and they said, oh, yeah, we don't have plug with content. So, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we, we definitely didn't didn't make out uh, terribly well with all that, but, you know, it is what it is. Wow, wow. Were you all able to, to get the, the child? I know you said you and your, your wife are no longer together, but since you mentioned it all in the book, did you all produce the child? No, no, we tried for a third time and it didn't work and uh just the stress of everything we parted amicably and uh you know, she uh, she adopted a little boy and was was happy and everything was well. But no, no kids. I think my dad had me when he was fifty, so I figured I got a little I got a little time, I'm forty three. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. Wow, wow. Uh, again, I will assume if folks are satisfied, again if you have a question, you should get your hand up right now. Star six the number six four one seven one five three six four zero and the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you have a question uh the book prisoners of katrina stranded at work in new orleans parish prison uh i would definitely i'm of the opinion i don't think this got nearly as much attention uh and a lot of the stuff that i saw when the storm happened other than that photograph i think a lot of people did see that image uh, when they had the the orange jumpsuits out stranded on the bridge yeah. and close to the water, yeah. and and that looked pretty crazy. Uh, just in reading now, uh, like today, when I got more of the details about how all that transpired, and reading your book to kind of see how that happened, even some of the inmates they were saying that they were stranded up on that bridge for days <laughs> that they hung up there. Probably, yeah. I mean, like I said, we, we I was where I was from Sunday evening to Friday midday. So, you know, like I said, they had to evacuate, I don't know, 65,000 or 7,000 inmates eight at a time by, you know, boat, by little flight boats and above sea bridge. So it was remarkable. Um, in hindsight, looking back, I mean, it felt like it was weeks, you know, we were there. But uh, the fact that they were able to, to, to get them to, I don't, if that broad sheet bridge wouldn't have been there, I don't know what would have, that would have been, 
uh, a scene that I can't even imagine. I heard it was pretty bad on that. We, you know, I was like I said, I didn't see it. I wasn't on there. By the time we got there, they were all evacuated. But uh, you know, I heard it was pretty chaotic, even even there. You know, having them all kind of waiting to get evacuated by bus. Um, but I can't imagine. I mean, the, the heat. You, you know, I don't know what it was worth being outside. I mean, it was, it was horrible where we were, but I imagine it was just as horrible being out in that sun. Um, you know, all day too. Absolutely. Uh, some of the some of the guards even uh, they have given you know they went and talked to some of the first responders so they could get a record of what they saw yeah. what happened and some of the guards that is exactly what they reported that it was hell it was hot uh, they were stuck out there for an eternity uh, before the buses came uh, the prisoners likewise they had pretty much the same thing the only difference was the balance of power the inmates a lot of them they said that they couldn't stand up they couldn't stretch uh, they just had to sit on the hot pavement for hours on end. Uh, and that they weren't even allowed to stand to urinate. So they had to urinate on themselves sitting on the ground. Uh, that was what they testified yeah. to. Yeah. All I can say is uh, hell on earth. Hell. I, had to, uh, I, had to, I had to do it on a sheet so. <laughs> and, and tie it up and get rid of it. So, yeah, I can't even imagine. <laughs> it was hard. Uh, yeah. I need mean, to tell you, uh, that's one time I wish I would have had the camera phones we had today and stuff I could have took pictures of back then, you know, had a had a Nokia phone, you had to press the the button three times to get to the third letter. That's how, that was my uh wow. <laughs> my phone back then. We had no camera phone, none of that. Uh would have would have been uh would have been amazing to be able to shoot some of the stuff that I, I saw, you know. Wow. Did you hear uh last question before we, you know, let you enjoy the rest of your evening. Did you hear uh former Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney uh, she said that during everything, the chaos, the, the days and weeks after Katrina, that uh, military personnel uh, came to her and reported that she had been a part of the disposal of about 5,000 corpses of these were inmates uh, that had been executed during all of this. Did you hear uh, Cynthia McKinney's report yeah, no. about this? No, well, nine thousand. Five, five, five. Oh, five thousand. Oh, no, I, no, God, no, I, no, I heard of that. That's. I don't see how it's possible, but wow. Uh, no, I hadn't heard that. What was her, what was her name? Cynthia McKinney. Uh, she was a six-time McKinney. elected congresswoman. I'm going to check that out. No, uh, no. That also is well, online. No, that. She, yeah, uh, I will be, I will be uh, online a lot in the next few days, for sure. Okay. <laughs> Right on, Mr. Uh, Gavin S. Johnson. Uh, great to have him on to talk about his book and his uh, experience with his father uh, just trapped uh, at Orleans Parish Prison for a week during and after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, thank you a bunch for coming on to share some of your uh, experiences, and we'll be on the lookout. You said it might be a television or movie deal, maybe down I'm, I'm efforting. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it was a story. I mean, you know, if you read the whole book, but... Uh... Pretty, uh, pretty incredible story. So yeah, you know, um, see what happens. I'm not for Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for sharing a bit of your time with us. Great having you on the program, and uh, we will look forward to being in touch with you soon, sir. Thank you, sir. Appreciate yes, it. Sir. Take care. Right. Bye. Context of white supremacy. Gavin S. Johnson, prisoners of Katrina. Um, there is a lot like I don't know what you know people know about in terms of uh, what happened 
uh, with Hurricane Katrina and, and the week. And as I said, it's, it's such a massive story. I'm glad that this is going to be the book that we're doing after we finish Ben Tillman tomorrow. The book we're starting next week is on Katrina uh, because I've said it's, it's just it's massive. Um, the serious. I don't know if that the call of the dialed in when he was talking about his assessment of what he heard from Mr. Johnson and he was pointing out the, the laughter and fair and all that. I don't know if he properly conveyed to folks that are listening the seriousness, the gravity of all of that. But I think that will be taken care of uh, once we get to do the book and all that and uh, go through the material over the next few weeks and everything. But it's it is massive. Uh, just the layers of white terrorism. Uh, that were practiced uh, during all of this and not just this like the storm. I mean, that's that's one level, like the things that they did and the, the things that they did or did not do in that immediate week of the storm. But I mean, when you really get an opportunity to sit down and study like the trajectory, the decade trajectory of everything that spiraled out of this in terms of the campaign of racism against black people, it is amazing. It is unparalleled. Uh, and I mean, it is downright traumatizing just to look at it, much less for the people who went through it. Uh, I definitely think it's important and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to spend some, do some quality work, uh, and presenting a lot of this material as people reflect, uh, what happened over there, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, in that vein, uh, I, th- I suspect that people know a lot more, uh, about looting or Kanye West, uh, or former FEMA director, uh, Michael Brown uh, or some of the other characters who, who got a lot of attention and were well known, talked about a lot during all of this. Uh, the prisoner aspect is something that I didn't know a lot about uh, until the last couple weeks ago. Uh, I'm trying desperately still to get that BBC documentary prisoners of Katrina, where they have a lot of footage of all of this, the evacuation and what was happening. I ended up contacting the filmmaker uh, directly uh, and he wrote me back and was saying, I can, I can maybe upload it so you could watch it. And then I was, you know, trying to see if we could get him on the program. He's, uh, English, obviously BBC, but I'll see if we can, uh, can get him on. If I can get access to the film, I'll see if I can share so folks can check it out. But, uh, it is, it is just amazing. Uh, there's a lot of information online. Democracy now did a lot of programs addressing what happened, uh, all over with Katrina and, and a lot of different areas. And then particularly with the prisoners, uh, I played a segment of that at the beginning of the program. Uh, other people address this as well. As I said, that ACLU report is, uh, extremely important. I would encourage folks to get that, uh, check it out. You can download it, uh, for free. Uh, it's available online, uh, and it's titled, uh, let's see, I should have, I'll give you the title once it's over. I thought they would have it like blown up at the, uh, at the top and they do not. Uh, yeah, they do not. At any rate, uh, this is an audio segment. One of the female prisoners, uh, who was in OPP Orleans parish prison, uh, who talks about her experience, what she saw while she was in greater confinement, what happened when they evacuated her and the ordeal that she went through, uh, after all of this, uh, this is a black female. Uh, I can, I mean, just layers of racism. Uh, I, I, this is one of the few times, like just looking at the different instances of, of what happened, what transpired, it will, it will literally, uh, leave you speechless at times, just hearing what happened and just the, the depths 
of white pathology in terms of of how they abuse and terrorize us at every turn. Even even in an apocalyptic biblical flood, you still have whites out practicing racism in every way, shape, form possible. Uh, So this is one of the unfortunate victims who was also stuck in Orleans Parish prison uh, at the time of the hurricane and the breach she gives her experience after that I'll give uh, one more quick anecdote of some of the black children who were stuck stranded abandoned uh, in Orleans Parish prison Uh, we'll get the first clip and then we'll be right back context of white supremacy my name is Michelle Sandifer and my name is Michelle Sandifer, and I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I was here during the hurricane as an inmate of Orleans Parish Prison. When the hurricane hit, we were left in there without food and water for four days, water up to our neck. The guards were telling us that they left us there to die, and um, they could not find anyone to get any authorization to have us removed. And when they did, evacuated us. They took us to another building that was just had been on fire and the smoke it was still full of smoke. And we were in there and me as an asthmatic patient breathing all that and when I wiped my nose and mouth nothing but black soot come out of it. You know. Then they left us there with no food, no water. We were then moved um if finally when the water was up to our chest. When they brought us downstairs the water was up to our chest. And we were going through, my legs were giving out on me, and this lady was helping me. So as we were going through Central Laptop, they still had the men prisoners in there, and they were unsupervised, and they sent us in through there, and they attacked us, the men prisoners. I mean, they they put their hands all up in us and, and grabbed us and everything. So... I screamed. One of the girls went back and got um, a ranking officer named Miss Watson and told her that, that what was going on, when they came, her and another male officer, they told them that that's what we wanted. Finally, when we get to a boat, I mean, we were going, they were bringing us through to get on a boat, and, and as we were getting on a boat, we were hearing gunshots, you know, gunshots. And I looked back, and there was a guy on the truck, laying on the truck, and I'm like, oh, my God. And the girl kept saying, just don't look, turn around, just keep moving, don't look. You know, don't look back, just keep walking. You know, then we finally get on the bridge, and still no food, no water, no medication. I'm a seizure patient. I'm a seizure, I'm epileptic, you know, and um, no medication. So we're up there, and when it gets daylight, nowhere to use the bathroom. And when it gets daylight, they're telling us to move, and I had a seizure. We people, I mean, inmates were just getting sick. We were just falling getting sick. Because I was on the medical unit when I was there in the prison. For my seizures, and um, I had a seizure and I couldn't move. And this, and this um, God told me move, and I couldn't. I said, I can't. I just had a seizure, and He pushed me and maced me, you know. And I mean, it was like, God. I mean, this. It was, this whole thing was just so traumatic. I mean, I've never been treated so badly, and and it was just unreal. We were on the bridge screaming at civilians. And telling them to help us, to please help us. You know, please just help us. Everybody's screaming, help me, help me, you know. Because we had no food, no water for days. And then um, 
They moved us down below, threw water at us. They just threw the water at us, bottles of water. Then they took me to a man's prison, Angola, where I should have never been. You know, there's no way they should have put any female in a men's prison, you know. <clears throat> and while there, I had to go through a lot of psychiatric treatment, um, social workers, priests, and, you know, clergymen, because of the traumatic, you know, from that traumatic experience, you know, um, security, that I had to talk to them, and, I mean, the whole ordeal was just, I mean, it's just something that, you, I mean, just to explain it, you could never, you know, explain it, and then you have to relive it when you talk about it, and it, and it makes it really hard to relive it. Nobody, this is unbelievable. And then to hear this man get on TV and say that everything went well and he treated us so good, it's just a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. I still have to deal with it. You know, and, 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 and I don't think, you know, the way we were treated was fair at all. And then they, they agreed that they violated our rights and everything. But it was like, you know. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I mean, it was like, they were like, we weren't even human. Like, we didn't even exist. I mean, they were saying, like, there was one thing they said. They were going to leave the prison where they belong. They was not going to evacuate us. You know, we were we were the last to be evacuated. I mean, even the animals were came before us, and that was really cruel. You know, that's cruel when animals come before humans' life. We kept trying to get out because the water was getting high, and we banging on the doors. We all panicked, and we were afraid. And the water was getting so high, and then the guards coming in, and they were screaming, they left y'all here to die. We don't have no authorization to get y'all out of here. We in here too, and they left us here to die, you know. We have to have authorization to move, y'all. We lose, we lost, you lose all your property. You don't get nothing back. You know, the clothes, the jewelry, all the stuff they took from us when we went in there. We don't got nothing of that. We don't get no compensation from it. You know, we don't, I mean, it's been nothing to, I mean, they still have people that are holding. They kept telling us they were going to release us on this date. They were going to release us on that date. And then they kept extending it, extending it, extending it, extending it. You know, they put in the paper, they will, all the prisoners will be released on this date. Then they extend it. They kept doing this over and over. The social worker would come in there and tell us something. And then she got to the point where she would come and say, I don't know anything. I can't tell you anything. It's up to Arlene's Parish. Well, we're not in Arlene's Parish, say, it's up to Angola, wherever you are. And then it was just a runaround, you know. You were in Angola that whole time afterwards? Yes. And the man's penitentiary. With men, all men, we were female were there. We had no right there. We had no business there. I mean, I wasn't right at all. I get sick in my stomach every time I think about it. It just, get, it just makes me sick. You know, and, and it took me so long to get over it. And I never thought I would get over it. You know, I just would panic all the time. And I just, you know, now I take medication, you know. And I'm trying to, you know, live with it and get around it.
looking for work, looking for a place to live, you know, which I, is, I don't have either. Can't get a trailer, you know. I'm living up here. It's 140 a week, you know. I'd like to have a house. Context of white supremacy. Hmm. That is one thing I can definitely uh, affirm. There is no event that I have studied, looked at, years that we've been on. There's nothing that compares uh, to the, I mean, it's incalculable devastation. In my view, precision crafted devastation to maximize harm against black people. That's the only thing that I can conclude looking at the, the totality of this. Because it's just, it's legions. It's, it's hundreds of thousands of black people who have the exact same type of experience that you just heard from her. I mean, it's not verbatim. Certainly you had uh, black people who suffered and had, you know, other abuses and what have you. But I mean, that devastation, that depression, I mean is hundreds literally whether they get moved back whether they got dispersed whatever is hundreds of thousands of black people who that's the trauma that they went through connected with this event whether in the immediacy of those first couple days or as things have continued over the past decade i will definitely uh get to folks if they want to give their assessment the caller who was trying to give us analysis of what he heard from uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, we'll make time for that. I just want to make sure I, I give you uh, a smidge from the uh, ACLU report, which is titled Abandoned and Abused Orleans Parish Prisoners in the Wake of Hurricane Katrina. Full title. Uh, so as I said, uh, you heard me speak about this with Mr. Johnson, them having black children at OPP. Continuing. To this day, it is still... Oh, wait a minute, that was one I read. Uh, so they have uh, anecdotes from some of the uh, black children who were at OPP during all of this. So I'm going to read. This is uh, Ashley George. Man, I would love to hear what she has to say today, reflecting uh, 10 years after all of this. But she wrote, and you get to hear from her directly. She wrote out, you know, what she, what she saw. I was 13 years old when the storm happened. I was in the Youth Study Center, YSC, but on Sunday, August 28th, that's the day before the storm, they moved me with other boys and girls from YSC to the prison. We were in the jailhouse across from the big boy jail. We were in a big dorm on the second floor with the adult women. Across the hall from us, there were adult men prisoners. Before the storm, when we were still able to use the toilets, the men watched us. When the storm started, water broke through the gate and started rising. The day after the storm, water came into the place and I was in water up to my neck for a couple days. I just want to pause right there. Uh, again, just the same thing I've been saying for accuracy's sake. This is not water. This is sewage toxic sludge we got no food no water I felt like I was going to die 
The guards didn't do anything to help us. We weren't going to get out, but the adult prisoners escaped and got help for us. Military people told us that if we had stayed in there another day, we would have drowned. Adults took a mattress and floated some girls out to the boat. I took another boat and went to the bridge where I got chips and water. Sometimes we had to go to the bathroom on the bridge and they put a box around us and made us go to the bathroom in front of the adults and other boys. There were pregnant girls with us also, but they did not get any special attention. We got on a bus that took us to Jetson. At Jetson, they gave us food and water and we took showers. They also gave us teddy bears. I was there for about three or four days before they brought me to some group home. I got to go with my grandmother about one month later. They have other black children who, uh, you know, bear witness to what they uh, experienced during this time. Uh, I will just stop there. People were, were saying amidst all of this, I think it is important, the reflection, uh, acknowledgement, learning. I definitely think we could all learn what has happened over the last 10 years because I'm sure after the attention, this was no longer hot news and really paying attention to see what happened uh, over, the, over the last decade uh, in terms of, of the displacement and just everything else, the firing of 7,000 uh, teachers, mostly black, the charter schools and the destruction of charity hospital, the destruction of public housing down there, just on and on and on and on and on. Um, so just to kind of analyze, study all of that, I think is, is a phenomenal moment. But I also think it's important just recognizing this could happen again easily. Any sort of event you saw uh, Superstorm Sandy, uh, the black mother who was out with her children and she could not get help same thing couldn't get help and her children died this could happen again if anything i would definitely encourage codification uh any sort of event where you need to do an evacuation uh you need to get your immediate family or anybody else that you're responsible for grandparents aunts uncles nieces nephews cousins whatever friends uh i would have drills i mean they have fire drills at school like once a month. Uh, I didn't grow up on the West Coast, but I have been here long enough now. They have earthquake drills, right, at schools. Uh, just have a drill. You can make it fun, get together. But I would be serious just so you can avoid some of the, uh, and I mean, ugliness is not the word. This, I mean, it is reprehensible. It is beyond appalling what they did uh, and what they have done over the last 10 years. It is beyond appalling. Uh, just for that, to say I'm going to try to do everything I can to make sure that we're not in that situation, uh, let's codify. We get together, shouldn't take more than an hour, just what are we going to do? Where are we going to meet? There were many, many black parents and black children that got separate. Like I read a report this week because they have some of the people that were children at that time, they're doing like uh, reflections because uh, now they're like 23, 24, 25. So looking back on, you know, this massive traumatic event in their childhood, it was children. The child ended up in Alabama. The mom ended up in Texas and like the grandmother was in like Louisiana. I mean, just... Ugh. And this was happening 
all the time like there were so many reports of white people coming out and saying yeah it was just not I me mean, you had a million people displaced there was no way to keep track of all that and people were drowning and dying and fleeing and it's just total anarchy chaos uh children totally separated don't know where their parent is just it, it looked like a war zone uh and i think dr rasayan what he say last week it looked like war had been declared against black people just for that alone where are we going to rendezvous if something happens and your children are at school we've already codified what to do this is where we're going to meet at if you have a cell phone boom this is what you do if the cell phones are down this is where we meet at you already got that planned and you do a drill again this shouldn't be something that takes a lot of time you can do like probably uh once every two months maybe once every four months or so just to make sure maybe even twice a year once you kind of get it down everybody knows what they're supposed to do uh but just go over it i think it's super important uh it's something that we should not minimize if anything in all of the reflection and looking back on this and the extraordinary loss of black life hey if this should happen again any sort of event any sort of disaster we've already codified what we want to do our documents make sure you have water and food available might even be good if you have your evacuation plan to also codify if it's a situation where you just need to be in your residence maybe for 30 days you just have to hunker down and have enough food and water that you can exist for 30 days might be good to have those resources as well because it was a lot of people uh they were stuck and they didn't have water they didn't have food it was just a terrible uh predicament all the way around uh you don't have to be a prepper but you definitely can make sure that you do everything that you can to make sure that you're in the best position uh if things should uh, take a turn a turn for the worse uh that's something that folks should keep in mind uh in the midst of all this uh, with that said, uh, if folks have any reflections on what they heard from uh, Mr. Johnson or other thoughts on, uh, I guess, anything Katrina related, feel free to chime in. Um, this one is short. And this all of this was news to me. I just did not know about the prisoner. I, I'm ignorant about everything. That's flat. <laughs> but I did not know about the prisoner aspect. I didn't know all the detail that you had all these children. These were not even the only children, these juveniles who, for whatever reason, got relocated there. Uh, you heard Mr. Johnson, he brought his father. There were people who brought their uh, their children, very small children, uh, who worked there, what have you, had relatives who worked there. Uh, so they were in this uh, environment as well. But uh, I just, I had no idea uh, that this went on. And just what I know about the system of white supremacy and the contempt for black life, it would not surprise me at all uh, in terms of if it was just, hey, leave those niggas there to drown and die. Like it would it would not surprise me at all who's going to count who's going to get they had already said before the storm we're going to leave them where they're supposed to be and i don't remember there being any anarchy i don't remember that being one of the lines people talked about i would put i would take any wager that you all have not heard anything about that this week outrage how could you dare say that you're going to leave the prisoners behind and whatever so i'll read the other anecdote just because it's quick uh this is from uh, ruby and george this is from that same acl you report abandoned and abused uh ashley is my granddaughter after the storm oh this is ashley's grandmother this is great uh after the storm i was going crazy i kept calling and calling and calling and calling i thought they took them to baton rouge before the storm they ain't nothing but children i kept calling all over but i didn't find out where she was for about a month she was in Baton Rouge. They kept giving me different numbers to call, and finally she called me on my son's phone. It's horrible. Nobody should have gone through that. 
adults or children. They should have gotten them out of there. I was mad they should have taken the children to Baton Rouge in the first place. If it wasn't for the prisoners, they would have drowned. Anywho, as I said, it's it's just immense. Uh, the amount, it's just volumes of, of literature that you can go through over the past 10 years. It is, uh, it is a rich body of black suffering is really the only way that I can uh, title it. But you can learn a lot. And if anything, I will not be using any more references like the go-to when people talk about racism to talk about like Emmett Till and all that. Katrina, you do not need to go pull out any black and white photos and talk about, oh my God, racism from way back when and the 1600s and anti No, Katrina, that is a live example that should be real uh resonant for that should resonate for anyone the images of those black people suffering and it's just so many layers of suffering uh, in terms of what was done that should be easy go-to uh for folks to make it plain to make it consistent in terms of what we're talking about and the fact that this sort of thing could happen at any time any place uh under the system of racism white supremacy I will pause there. If folks have uh, comments they would like to get in, feel free. Number again, new number, new number, new number. 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. New number again, 641-715-3640. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, one of the other inmates who was trapped black male uh, at Angola, uh, he reported, uh, and I think you heard that from the black female that was just talking about how she got stuck in Angola. Excuse me, one of the prisoners at Orleans Parish Prison. Uh, I think he ultimately did end up at Angola too, but that's another story. He said that uh, his 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 property was confiscated, right? Didn't get anything back. All the stuff that they take when they put you in greater confinement, he didn't get anything back. On top of that, he said that uh, his daughter was calling and trying to find him. And one of the guards at the prison answered his phone <laughs> when his daughter called. <laughs> and she was like, what is going on? I'm trying to find my dad and this guard has stolen her dad's phone. <laughs> it's just like, ah, man, Katrina 10 resilience. That's what they're saying. Resilience, recovery, context of white supremacy. Uh, the folks that dialed in uh, last four digits, nine, four, five, everybody who dialed in with a hand up line should be uh, open. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, if you dialed in with a hand up, you should be with us. Good evening, Thomas Smith from New York again. Um, man, um, that story, that lady, that little clip you just played, man, I, I had to fight back the tears listening to that story. That was just crazy. She had a seizure and still got me. Man, uh, this has um, been traumatizing for me, kind of, a living this. You know, this is something that it was so traumatizing to see. Then you kind of put it, you know, I guess in your, in your subconscious like I said before, I worked right across. My building was attached to the World Trade Center, and that had nothing on this. This was like, I felt it so deep watching it on TV unfold every day. 
listening to all the stories, hearing Ray Nagin say, anyone caught looting, I'm throwing them right in Angola. You know, like, and, and this is what Angola was. I mean, this is what people in next high water for a few days, women let, being let go through a men's prison and being um, violated. And then, of course, they can sit back and say, oh, they was raping women. I mean, this is terrible. The, the guest tonight, he was a racist. Um, I, I did not like how he kept snickering either. I felt like um, he snickered at times where it was something that was not funny at all. And, um, you know, when he left off saying he wanted to, at least he had a camera phone, um, so he could have... Um, you know, got some of this stuff on footage. This is right after you said how the guys were sitting down on the curb urinating because they weren't allowed to stand up. And, yeah, I wish I had that on film. You know, like, these these people are disgusting and filthy. Um, and, and um, you know, like you said, I, how you kind of put it, you know, like you expected this from them. Yes, absolutely. Um, until we all start doing that, we won't have this problem. Um, I had a quick question, um, to one for you and another for um, Mr. Scotty Reed. If he's on the line, I had a quick question for him because he said something that, that on his show the other day that would have made that that's potentially could make Katrina look like you know a band aid. I mean, this I just wanted to ask him a question. And um, question for you was um, I I'm, I know it's off topic, but uh, the man of this guy yesterday um. You know, to me, a hero went and shot these two people on a television show. And um, I have not been able to find this manifesto. Have you been able to find it, Gus? I have not. Um, I looked for I've it. looked high and wide, and I cannot find it. I just get little clips from it. Mm-hmm. It has to exist. Yeah, I don't. That's, that's odd because Dylan... Roos manifesto was available I believe the day that they reported that it was available uh, I'm trying to remember for Christopher Dorner I think that came out pretty soon I don't remember there being a lag like this is kind of odd I remember the shooter in uh, California uh, Roger uh, Elliot Roger uh, who shot those people and then allegedly killed himself as well uh, his manifesto was available pretty quick like I, I mm-hmm. found that suspicious as well that they have not uh, I found the whole yeah, it must Go ahead. It must be a blind indictment. I mean, he must have laid it out, and they don't want that to be seen. That's the only thing, reason I can say. I mean, he must have he must have really hit it right on with the head. This system, this is how you people are. You know, they do not want to hear that. They don't want to talk about that. No. I'm sorry, Gus. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just the whole the whole thing is is uh, suspicious. Um, I'm curious to, to learn more, uh, to get the manifesto and just to continue learning. The whole thing is, is suspicious and I'm, I am reserving judgment until I get further details. I will say that I am very familiar with Roanoke. This happened in Virginia. I know Virginia. Well, I was kind of, it was kind of a whoa moment like WDBJ seven like that. Uh, anyway, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the information that I've seen on it thus far, I'm, I'm still waiting for more details and I find it, uh, fascinating that cause someone asked me that, Oh, somebody's got, like, the uh, program. I'm hearing it in the background. The, uh...
Yeah, someone had asked me about if uh, if racism was involved in the case. And I said I wasn't really sure because this was like within minutes of the shooting happening and being reported. And the Washington Post, they I put it in the Facebook group. They had a, a pretty lengthy article and it talked about his history. And then lo and behold, yes, he <laughs> said that they had been making racist comments. So that I found intriguing. I'm just I'm waiting for more details, waiting for the uh, manifesto. And we shall see. Any of the other folks that are on the line, did y'all have uh, commentary? Uh, your line should be open. Uh, I'm not sure if people uh, hit the... Uh... Oh, I did just mute the, the person that had the background noise. Sorry about that. I did mute your line. Just uh, ring back in and We'll uh, unmute Can you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, this was a uh, wild chiming in from Milwaukee. Uh, Gus, I just want to thank you a lot for the platform. And uh, my apologies if I may have been a little uncodified in uh, my response. But my patience was wearing pretty thin with uh, Mr. Johnson. Uh, all the snickering and the laughing. Um, and, you know, just the uh, amount of horrific deaths uh, that took place in this whole thing. Um, I was just getting released out of greater confinement in 2004, and this took place in 2005, and I was still uh, a lot more confused about racism. And uh, but I was, you know, catching the images every day, and it was uh, it was really hard to take in. So now you fast four years later. And I'm a little bit less confused, and uh, it's just really just hard to swallow. Um, I was in greater confinement during the time of uh, the towers, uh, the situation that took place in New York. And uh, I remember, uh, I was about 18 at this time, 19, and I remember people saying, well, you know, mates are expendable. You know, if uh, if they said if a war broke out on American soil, the inmates are expendable, meaning that, well, they can just take us out and shoot us, you know. And there was a lot of high stress during that time. So to hear what these uh, inmates was going through, um, it, it's almost just like just tear jerking. And um, my patience is just really wearing thin uh, under this system. I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, I guess we just got rated as the second poorest city behind Detroit. And um, you can feel it amongst the people. Um, it's like a big pressure cooker. And uh, at this point, it's, you know, I'm, I'm losing hope. I'll just be totally honest. And uh, I was the caller that uh, was talking about the uh, school situation that I was going through. And, you know, uh, I was getting uh, misinformation, and uh, I'm sorry to say that I had to uh, re uh, withdraw my registration from the school um, because I felt like I was just being just mistreated too much. And the fall semester was about to start. I still my, fin my financial aid was not in place, 
and I was just under very high stress, and I did not want to go into the semester um, in that way. So, uh, yeah, kind of back at square one. And uh, thanks for taking the call. I'm mute my line. Right on. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I'm not. Again, I'm not surprised that they are making it difficult uh, for you to pursue uh, additional uh, education. But uh, hopefully, you'll be able to uh, find another another route to get the information you were looking for. I'm sorry to hear that, but uh, that is to be expected in this system. They're going to make it difficult for you to do constructive things. Uh, the commentary, no apologies for, for the Shen. I just try and uh, try to get as many questions in as possible uh, while we have the guests with us. But yeah, I thought the commentary, your, uh, your perception of him, I, I thought it was uh, completely correct. Uh, the snickering and, and not taking this uh, serious, really behaving like a white person. I thought, uh, in all of this, and and I thought particularly his response about even his employment in an institution that he saw was blatantly exploiting black people. Uh, but hey, I'm working. I'm working here for six years so that I can help pay for our use of the fertility clinic. That is Welsing. Wow. The folks mm-hmm. have other commentary. Anybody we uh, haven't heard from? Yes. Um, the, <clears throat> excuse me. This is Scotty from North Carolina. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to all. Um, the listeners and uh, those who have called, I thought Mr. Johnson was practicing deception or I just, I just cannot, I cannot fathom someone living in that city where all that was going on to be so ignorant about the stories of, that came out of there, especially Algiers Point where they were hunting down black people. Um, the nation did a great um Story on that. I can't remember Jeremy. I think it's Jeremy Scahill um, who went down there and he was interviewing these white people and they were openly admitting to him. I don't know if he had a hidden camera or what, but they were openly admitting that they were shooting uh, black people. Um, so I, I just I just feel like he was practicing a lot of deception. I, I might be incorrect in that belief and maybe he's just very in uninformed but i got the same impression as as what you stated gus and what the caller stated that you know he wasn't taking it serious with all of that death and, and destruction you know I, it's not a laughing matter i didn't see anything that was stated that was you know worthy of uh laughter um just just really um points i think to his pathology um um, the I was just reading a story while I was read, uh, listening to you. There was a story published on Yahoo about the uh, bridge and how these people, some of them had volunteered to stay behind. They were at like this transit uh, center, and some of them made a decision to wade through that toxic waste and um, make their way to a safer, a safer, drier place. And when they came up on that bridge, how the police had blocked off that bridge. And among those who were trying to escape was a black police officer. And this black police officer, he was armed. He had a revolver. But um, when they came to that bridge, he said that they had shotguns and other uh, weapons, the police that is, and was trying to force these people to go back, wouldn't let them pass. Um, through this little white enclave or whatnot, and he he um, he seems like an older gentleman, like he might be older than me. Um, 
He had been with the New Orleans Police Department for over 20 years and whatnot. He's former military. And so he was saying that he was, he was like in shock that these white police officers did not afford him the courtesy that is afforded to, you know, the brotherhood, quote unquote. And, you know, I was like, well, he's very confused if he doesn't see uh, why these white, as you call them, race soldiers didn't see him as a brother. Um, so, yeah, I, I was reading about that. Very tragic. And I'll mute my line. That, I believe, is the Crescent City Bridge uh, incident uh, where the president of uh, Jefferson Parish uh, said that they and even that's why I said there's so many layers. You can study every area of people activity. So the president of Je- uh, the president of Jefferson Parish. Originally, they said that a looter had broken into Jefferson Parish from Orleans Parish, New Orleans, had come in and had uh, robbed a store, robbed a business. So they said, you know what, that's it. Putting armed guards on the bridge and we're not letting any more of you niggers into Jefferson Parish. So, and I mean, you had people that were like on vacation. (laughs) New Orleans is a tourist. You had people that were on vacation like, hey, I don't even, I don't even live here. I'm just trying to get home or whatever. I just came down here to get drunk and go to the casino and do my thing. Uh, Hey, you know, can we cross? It's, It's flooded. No, at gunpoint. No, leave. Get out of here. This was upheld. And the the even though it was not surprising to me that this was upheld as this is legal, you didn't do anything uh, incorrect. And it was said I would do the same thing again if I had it to do over. It was not that looters had broken into the city. The justification once they got to trial was we didn't have resources. These people needed water. They needed uh, FEMA, Red Cross. They needed, you know, help with being evacuated to wherever they were going to go. None of that was in Jefferson Parish. So there was no need to have them come into our city. We were helping. Really, we were looking out for you by not allowing you to come into Jefferson Parish. We were looking out for you because there was no help uh, for you here. So we had to have armed guards to redirect you so you didn't get lost. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, uh, wait a minute. Is there anybody that we haven't heard from? Just making sure we haven't missed anybody that has not been able to speak. Anybody we have not heard from? Greetings. Yes, sir. Greetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, I uh, missed the, uh, the guest. And uh, I'm under the assumption that the subject matter was and still is uh, Katrina. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, sir. We were specifically Uh, talking about the uh, prisoners uh, that were left in the jail uh, in New Orleans doing all of this, mostly black prisoners, including it was about, I think, uh, 6,500, between 6,500 and 7,000, mostly uh, black prisoners, including some children. Wow, I, I know that that went from bad to worse. Oh yeah, uh, with the uh, with the uh, floods, the, the levees uh, breaking. It doesn't get any better. Uh, the way I the way I would understand it, because there is there is uh, uh, martial like plans uh, that has been in place for 
you know, maybe 100 years, actually, you know, in time of uh, war and or disaster. And, of course, the, uh, the attention of the white collective when uh, uh, professional, quote-unquote, law enforcement would be kind of like null and void in a lot of cases, because the same thing happened down here uh, with Hurricane Andrew, which actually the storm of Hurricane Andrew was much more worse than Katrina, as far as the storm is concerned. And uh, there was no, there was no quote-unquote law enforcement for about maybe, maybe a week. <laughs> so you know, white people with all of their guns, with all of their guns and, and, uh, and the main gun that's between the ears uh, uh, is going to, uh, you know, really be uh, uh, a much more heavy burden on non-white people. And uh, so I can see where people in non-white black people in greater confinement would actually even get more of the uh, brunt of the uh, of the issue from a negative standpoint. Just curious, though, uh, because I, I did hear some people talk about the uh, the shooting incident uh, uh, that happened uh, in Virginia. Uh, and what normally comes around that uh, is uh, maximum emergency compensatory justice. Uh, not saying not saying that that uh, he actually. Uh, was uh, 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 practicing that exactly, but uh, just my thought, you know, the first thing comes to my mind when I see a story uh, that is similar to uh, something of that uh, fraction to kind of like compare and see if uh, there's some accuracy in, into that in what a uh, quote what a non-white person goes. Uh, goes in that direction. But uh, one, one last thing, uh, is it true that he mentioned something about that he was being mistreated because he was gay? Also? I've seen that attributed to his manifesto, but they haven't released the whole thing, but I've seen something that suggests that attributed to him. Okay, okay. Because uh, they ask, I think everybody online knows they, uh, that has been that has been uh, consistently, especially lately, mixed in with uh, with uh, uh, counter racism. I even I've even seen uh, a report with Black Lives Matter that was uh, uh, holding up protest signs for quote unquote black transgender people. You know, and uh, I'm just, I just said to myself, wow, you know, I'm not surprised about it, of course, but uh, yeah, but that's all I have for right now, because I'm tuning in late. Right on, right on. Uh, did, uh, well, I guess before I check to see if we miss anybody, just... If folks were pondering, because I'm sure that popped into some other people's uh, minds, uh, according to what Mr. Fuller has written, 
the code that he's laid out, which everybody does not have to follow. You can pick and choose, you know, right on. Uh, you are not supposed to talk about uh, Mecca or MECJ, Mecca, uh, Maximum Emergency Compensatory Act or Maximum Emergency Compensatory Justice. Uh, the person, if they're going to do it, they are not supposed to talk about it. Uh, like you're not supposed to leave a letter or a YouTube video and all that other stuff. Uh, you just do what you're going to do. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so... I, at least I have seen it reported that he was uh, the alleged shooter in this case uh, was sending out commentary on social media and a video and all that. So that would not be what Mr. Fuller has laid out. I know people always always ask uh, if uh, if an event qualifies. Uh, did we miss anybody? Anybody uh, have a hand up who has not been able to share? Excuse me, Gus. Has anybody been saying that your voice is breaking up? Over their phone. Ah, uh, well, now that you have, uh, I will. Uh, it is breaking up, um, Gus. I was going to ask the same question. It, it goes in and out. It's staticky. I don't know if there's anything you could do on your end to fix that. It could be. Oh, the internet. Oh. I, I hear you clearly, Mister Reed. While um, while Mr. Renegade tries to uh, fix that, I just wanted to um, reiterate something that he said that I thought was very important. It is important to stock up. It is important to put food away. You know, candy, oh, yes, dry goods, things of that nature. I know that based on people, you know, economic um, status, that it may seem difficult. But even if dollar store, you know, like, you know, they might have a family dollar, Dollar General. Those are some of the stores around here where you can go get, like, cans of tuna fish, you know, different canned goods for less than a dollar. And so every time you go out, I mean, even if you can only just afford to buy one uh, item and then put put it away, you know. But if you can afford it, um, yes, you, you should be preparing uh, for these things, um, because uh, as we can see, a lot of people were um, not prepared for that hurricane. And, and so I know a lot of that has to do with them being poor and starved resources. But, you know, at, at the same time, you know, let's learn from past mistakes. And so we should be preparing. And I will also say that firearms, that having a firearm is a must. Um, and yeah. not, just, not just for self-protection, but also, in so you can feed yourself, you know, uh, in, in a situation, depending upon where you are. You know, you might want to be able to sustain yourself on uh, squirrels and things of that nature in emergency situations. So I, I just wanted to stress what Gus said about, you know, stocking up for emergencies, having a 30-day food supply. And if you can stock more, do stock that. But that was very important what he said. So I wanted to reiterate that. Thank you. Yes, have your own medical supplies also. Uh, I've, I've always liked the idea of the uh, the military surplus stores, uh, which has the the uh, medical first aid, first responder type of uh, full kits, uh, even uh, the uh, K-ration type of stuff that the military normally has when they're out on long periods of time. 
they have that, those supplies, and they already are packed and, uh, you know, and, and ready to just, you know, purchase and, you know, you store 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 them in a uh, cool, dry place uh, to be able to take them right out when uh, when you need to uh, to uh, be under that type of condition. Uh, there's something to uh, you know, especially you know, you, you know, like South Florida area, Florida area, you know, where I grew up at and, and still reside. That it's uh, it's uh, always important to have it. Matter of fact, if a hurricane approaching uh, the lower portion of Florida right now, it'll be here by uh, Sunday or Monday, something like that. No one's really expecting it to uh, hit hard, but, you know, you never know. Be prepared. Be codified. Definitely, uh, definitely important. Now you, you're pretty, pretty clear now. All right on. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Yeah, I would definitely encourage that. And, and I cannot emphasize enough, uh, particularly for people, if you have children, um, I mean, that is, that is like gut wrenching, like that, that was not like a one-time thing that that was like widespread in terms of children and parents being like totally disconnected. And like, I, I have no idea where my mom is, or I have no idea where my child is. I have no idea if my child is alive. Uh, and this, you know, taking months for this to be resolved. Like, are they alive? Where are they? Oh, I'm in Kentucky and they're in the, I mean, man, definitely have that conversation. And I would encourage do, uh, drills to make sure that you have it down in terms of, you know, this is where we're going to meet. This is what to do. If the phones go out, all that, like really talk through that. Cause I, I just, I don't have children, but I just, I cannot imagine, uh, the horror of uh, that sort of thing happening uh, if you you know haven't got all that worked out and just being separated from your child not just someone you care about from but from your child I just I cannot imagine I mean, you talk about trauma can I be heard yes sir uh, I got a question um, concern in our black rage uh, anger um, I've always been a pretty serious person and as I'm becoming a little less confused about racism, white supremacy, I'm finding it hard to uh, keep a balance. And I'm being told that I'm angry and uh, militant, radical, you know, all of these different things. And uh, I just uh, would like some suggestions on uh, how to how to find uh, balance and uh I don't know, maybe not uh, come across as um, so angry, uh, I guess, especially when, when I'm dealing with other black people. I know in the uh, prayer, you always uh, ask the creator uh, to help us be patient, uh, especially with other black people. And uh, yeah, that's the question that I had. Thank you. Uh, I reckon I would say I think that's pretty common uh, in terms of 
black people uh, who talk about racism and make an effort to be serious, be constructive. I've heard consistently when people say, oh, you're you're angry. You're so militant. You're so radical. I think Crystal Tyler, the first time she was on the program, she said uh, referenced us as being radical or militant. Um, you know, if it's black people that are saying this, <clears throat> I would just say that that's pretty consistent. I'd almost say that it's conditioning uh, when people use those type of terms. So um, at least for myself, uh, I don't get upset or try to take it personally. If anything, I just say that, you know, this is this is the programming. This is the way that white people have groomed us to respond and characterize a black person <clears throat> who's talking seriously about racism. Like, oh, my God, you're one of those radicals. You're one of those crazy niggers. Like, this is consistent. This is long running uh, where this has been done. And I mean, not even <clears throat> stopping, number one, if I looked like Tim Wise, I could say this and it would be, you know, great. That's part of the, the conditioning of racism, white supremacy. Uh, and it's it's also, well, I mean, even if I was angry, don't we have a, a right to be angry? Isn't that, you know, human? You see white people, they get to be angry all the time, even if I was. And also, that's why I said I don't take it personal, because I know most of the time when I'm talking about racism, I sound the same way that I do right now. Like, I am not angry. <laughs> I am not yelling. I'm not jumping up and down. Like, even even your assessment of me as being angry is reveals a lot about the system of racism, white supremacy. It's almost Darren Wilson when he says Michael Brown was Hulk Hogan, this demonic Hulk Hogan that, you know, had to be shot 5,000 times. I mean, it's, it's in my mind, it's very similar in terms of the way that we perceive black people, particularly uh, if they are calling into a, uh, calling into question white authority, white supremacy, even if there's not a white person present. Uh, that's the way that you will be thought of perceived. So I try not to take it personal. I just think of it as that is the programming, the conditioning of racism, white supremacy. Uh, if I think the person, uh, if we can have dialogue about that, I will. If not, I just smile to myself and keep it pushing. Um, like uh, mm. I make sure that I'm not forcing it on them. Like I, I make sure that I'm not talking about racism or bringing it up. If they've made it clear that they're not interested or if this is a topic that, you know, they don't want to talk about. No problem. You know, I can keep my mouth closed and, you know, you can we can change the topic, talk about something else. And I, I might not even comment on that, but I will listen if you want to share on something else no problem or we can sit quietly but as long as i'm not forcing it on them and as long as i know i'm not being angry i don't take it personal and and i don't even i just view a typical another day business as usual another day on the plantation okay because like the level of confusion um that uh i'm coming across when i'm encountering other black people uh man uh, like my patience is getting very short. Um, and I'm finding myself not really wanting to, uh, just even be around people, you know? Um, and it's children involved and they say, Oh, well, you know, you're spreading hate and you know, things of that nature. And, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty tough to deal with. Um, now I kind of feel like, uh, you know, I'm all by myself. I've been listening for a long time and uh, to the cows and uh, just the black talk radio network in general. And I find myself calling in a lot more um, because it's like, this is the only place that I can really dialogue. And uh, I mean, just that in itself is so frustrating. 
therein lies the problem of racism. I mean, that is the enormity uh, of all of this. Uh, and and that's something I would just say for comparison's sake. White people get to talk to other white people about racism all the time. Uh, you, we've had folks who said that they were talking to their six-year-old about racism. White parents talking to their six-year-old white children about racism and their aunts and uncles and cousins and co-workers. So, I mean, they're getting to do this all the time. We don't get that luxury uh, to be able to talk and refine our code all the time with other black people that we care about. Anywho, um, I just I think it's very important. I say this all the time about having correct expectations. Um, In my view, if there is a system of racism, white supremacy, and one of the products of that is that you have a lot of non-white people who don't clearly understand racism, white supremacy, don't respond logically to counter that system of racism, white supremacy, are afraid, fearful paralyzed by fear and denial uh, about all of this all of those symptoms that's going to be a major part of how we respond so I think it's very important a part of that patience is understanding like if I know this is what the system of racism is designed to do is to produce confused misguided miseducated black people who will function against their own self and group interest if I know that I can't be surprised when I bump into that like I've got to be expecting that that's going to be the case. And I think that's why Mr. Fuller in his code book, he says, uh, minimize contact that you don't have frivolous contact with anybody really, but particularly, uh, victims. You make sure that when you're going to have contact, when you're around them, we're doing something constructive. And then as soon as that activity is over, I will catch you later. Uh, I had a listener. They said they met Josh Wickett, who he's been a guest on Cree's program. Uh, he's written, uh, for the code.net. He's been a guest on the cows. Um, but he, I think someone got to meet him, Josh Wickett, and, uh, he was hoping that they could like go hang out, go get a coffee or whatever. And Mr. Wickett was like, uh, well, I'll be seeing you. And the guy was like, oh, wait a minute. I thought we could kick it. And he was like, hang out. Like, did you hear that? Uh, I do. I don't know. Them was gunshots. I'm outside. Let me get to the house here. Oh wow! Be safe. Be safe. Yeah. That's see that that right there is a part of the design to have non-constructive activity going on all the time, conflict uh, in the presence of non-white people. So sometimes that's you know it might be best if you're saying you don't you know feel like being around people, you don't have the same patience and spending more time by yourself. Sometimes that might be uh, the best thing to do. Uh, and, Go ahead, go ahead. I, I take I take a different approach, you know, I make sure that that's all I talk about all the time, twenty four seven. And if you don't like it, then don't talk to me. That's how I am. This is the problem. These people are the problem. If y'all don't see it, I don't know what's wrong with you, but that's all I'm gonna talk about. And there's a lot of people that don't talk to me. <laughs> you know, but hey, hey, we are at war. But these people are playing, they're at war with us and we're not at war with them. And it's, it's time for people to see it. And I will tell you that a lot of times someone will come to me months later and say, yo, you said this before and this is just what happened. And they start, I think, you know, opening up their eyes to it. Um, you know, in particular, like even my mother, you know, now she's posting things. So I heard. You know, my, my my best friend told me today, oh, your mother's starting to become a radical, <laughs> you know, like like you, you know what I'm saying? And it, that's how it is. I mean, I, I feel like 
it's such a big problem that this is all we need to be focusing on is this problem. And um, this is our biggest problem. These are our biggest adversaries. And they know that, and we don't. And we need to inform everyone that that's the problem. That's my note on it, you know. I understand people who don't want to talk about it and don't want to get in conflicts with other blacks. My thing is, then I don't want to talk to you no more. If you're not on the side here, then, you know, you go ahead with yourself. I don't want to deal with you. I would just point out to the caller, you heard again, radical. His mom is radical. That's why I said it's so ubiquitous. Just that is the conditioning. I have a suggestion um, to the question that the caller asked. Um, think of, I don't know if you have children or not. Um, I have. Uh, okay, well, um, approach these people like they are your children. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, I have my youngest daughter. I have three daughters. My youngest daughter is 18. My oldest daughter is 22. And just the other day, I have talked to them about how to interact with police and, and, you know, just about racism and white supremacy in general. I have told them y'all need to tune in to Black Talk Radio, tune in to the cows, because y'all need to learn. And, and so, but you have that patience with them as you would have with your own child. Now, if these are, are people that, that, you know, you, you find yourself in conflict, I've heard Gus say, minimize contact with them, minimize the conversation and just keep it strictly business or, or whatever. And so that's how I will approach it. Look at these, look at, you know, our more confused brothers and sisters as if they are our children and they're still learning and growing. That's how I would look at it. I did have another observation about the guests, um, about the laughing and stuff. Um, again, I have been really looking at empathy and implicit bias and whatnot, and his laughing is an indication that he doesn't empathize with black people. That's what his laughing was about. He doesn't have any empathy. I imagine if it was a whole bunch of white people that had gotten wiped out and went through a similar circumstance and the majority of the victims were white, he would not have been laughing about that situation. Thank you. Oh, and, to that point, like to before add, you, no. before you, before Sorry. you add, sir, just to that point, I forgot one passage I was going to read uh, in the book. It reads, "Once I got settled in, we all started talking. I don't remember how we got on the subject, but we started talking about where the inmates were going. Someone said that's going to be screwed up if someone is in here on a drunk in public charge, and now there'll be somebody's girlfriend up at Angola." We all hmm. burst out laughing. <laughs> wow. And, yeah, just to add um, to both of those points, like, the reason why I really got, like, uh, irritated and my patience got short with him because the laughing sounded so sinister. Like, it wasn't just like a regular, like, a, you know, you could, it seemed like the, um, just his racism was just spilling over. And, uh, yeah, it just kind of just got to me a little bit there. And uh, thanks for the uh, suggestions and the input uh, from you guys. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. That came up uh, on a program not that long ago. I believe it was the white woman who wrote that article, uh, I Am White Like Dylan Roof. 
uh, where she also was doing some inappropriate laughter. And I think we've had some some other because I've said this is pretty consistent where we've had white people on the program and, it, and they have laughed uh, at just talking about how black people are terrorized. Uh, and, you know, they end up chuckling about all of this, that that's something that's consistent. And I think it's exactly uh, it reveals their pathology and it, it reveals that they totally are not going to divest from this ever. Mm. I did have an observation about the uh, whole Virginia thing. I was watching uh, mainstream media, and uh, the, they held a press conference, and um, they said that it was the whole W, uh, whatever the initials are for the uh, television station. They said that it was everybody out. Yeah, everybody was out there that worked there. And uh, I skimmed the crowd a few times. I rewound it, slow motion and everything like that. I saw two people of color, and they was right in front. They were in front. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) And it had to be at least, you know, at minimum 30 people out there, at minimum. Hmm. So just to speak to the, you know, the workplace racism, uh, if this whole fiasco, you know, is we assuming it happened the way, you know, it's saying, um, I could just imagine. But uh, Mr. Fuller said the three T's. Absolutely. This might have to, uh, I mean, folks can feel free to talk about this uh, Saturday for the compensatory call, but I was thinking, you know, pending on, how all this plays out, this might end up being part of the workplace racism segment of Saturday if, uh, you know, things are what they say. But anywho, um, did it just uh, President Obama did speak in the ninth war today? Did anybody see his uh, his speech? I didn't. I got a record. I didn't get a chance to look at it yet. Hmm. Let's see, folks missed it. I, I tuned in. um I've heard him give a lot of uh, speeches at this point, victim of racism. (laughs) We're in a system of white supremacy. The problem is white people. At any rate, uh, I've heard him give a lot of speeches uh, at this point. And uh, I must say, I think this was the first time that I was uh, nauseated uh, listening to him talk. Um, He's a victim of racism. And I I suspect it might even be that, or matter of fact, I think it's highly likely that white people are, are writing and dictating what he's going to say, what he's going to talk about. Uh, but it was, and white people could have very well, racists could have very well written uh, what he said. At any rate, uh, he was talking about the recovery in New Orleans. And he mentioned the people that still hadn't made it back, but he did not point out explicitly that it is 100,000 black people that have not made it back. Uh, he went on to talk about how he, this was like a main theme that this was not about rebuilding New Orleans the way it was. This was about creating a better New Orleans because there were lots of social inequalities uh, in place that was harming the very same people that were left behind during the storm and that that needed to be remedied in the recovery. And he said, uh, you all have have been making great strides in that department. And he got this raucous ovation. And for me, that was appalling because, I mean, 
we need accuracy we had that was in my opinion that's one of the main things that sticks out in Katrina black corpses and white lies uh, we don't need deception like to say when you still have a hundred thousand black people that have not even made it back permanently banished how on earth does that constitute yes we did a great job worthy of an ovation to say yes Katrina 10 resilience and recovery we have banished a hundred thousand black citizens I mean in addition to everything else that happened that we will be talking about over the next uh, few I mean it's just it is appalling it was it was a it was the first time ever that I, I like had to stop uh, listening like I was not I know other people you know I'm not feeling him personally or whatever. And it, it wasn't like that. It was just I found it appalling to listen to that. And the optics, when they pulled back to show the crowd and their raucous appreciation of, of his remarks, it was a whole bunch of white people in the crowd, in the Ninth Ward, applauding President Obama. And I said, just just that right there is enough for me to comment for people who know about the Ninth Ward, predominantly black area, which has been largely decimated to this day. I mean, decimated to the point of where they weren't even cutting the grass in the area up until now it's getting close to the recovery. So they were going around trying to trim things up and make it look a little bit better. But I mean, just they haven't, I think they have still lost more than 50% of the population in that area. I mean, total devastation. Uh, But just that to have him there with tons of white people in the audience celebrating as though things have been great uh, post levy breach Katrina it was uh, it was appalling but I guess a lot of y'all didn't see it uh, folks have anything else they want to get in before we uh, wrap up I uh, just had I did see the little caption uh, said that the city was moving in the right direction and uh, I had that same thought like well how could the city be moving in the right direction I've been uh, I actually got to see uh <clears throat> The 2000 and was it 2005, 2006, uh, where Cynthia McKinney was uh, talking to Mama D and some of the other residents, and uh, like to just to say that you know the city is moving in the right direction just kind of shows, like you say, the contempt for Black life. Absolutely, absolutely. Why display? That's what's been on display this week. Uh, that was what was on display the whole time with Hurricane Katrina. And that's definitely uh, the theme that I have been seeing a lot this week in, in the stories and what's been shared. More to come. Certainly the shooting in Virginia. We'll be talking about that. And, and Katrina will be talking about that as well. Uh, with that, folks satisfied? Anybody have anything else they needed to get in? Hey, another act of racism the guy did, the guest that, you know, um, asked him about mental health. I expected him to actually stay much higher percentage of blacks than 60. But, you know, he went on his, he's a mental health practitioner, but he says, you know, oh, well, you know, whites are on medicine, you know, they're much more medicated. You know, I, I, that's the act of racism. I mean, you know for sure that these poor black people aren't getting the same health care I get the same medications that the whites are that have mental health problems. And that, that could be the, the difference between them being in greater confinement and not being in greater confinement, especially when you're in jail for petty things like 
sleeping in the park or, you know, public drunkenness, like you said, in, in the in the Big Easy, where, you know, people get throw bees at drunk people topless, you know, I mean, it, that that's okay, but, you know, God forbid a black man's drunk in the street and, you know, sat down on the park bench, he's in jail and this happens and, you know, it, it's just ridiculous. Um, and, and he kept chuckling during that part, too. It was sort of like, yeah, these dummies, you know, you know, big deal. But, you know, black people are nothing more than a paycheck to him. You know, he, he got a good six-year gig or whatever, making good money to sit around black people and get them medication that they should have been getting on the outside, and they would, probably would have caused them not to be in prison. So, um, you know, just all-around racism. And uh, thanks for the show this evening, Gus. Uh, great show. Love when you have white people on. And um, have a nice evening to everyone. Thank you. Appreciate that. You as well, sir. You as well. Hope it was constructive. Uh, I can say that reading uh, the book, and I hope people don't purchase the book. Certainly he is a white man. We shouldn't be funding him. But um, it was like with the gravity of the subject, like I didn't I didn't know anything. I didn't know any of the details about what happened with these uh, prisoners and, and all of this. I didn't know any of it. So um, as I started researching more, because his book does not go into all of the detail about you know the allegations and what happened and blah 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 it's really just focused on it's i mean it's his book is really standard white supremacy like in something that was immense black death the main focus is just about he and his dad getting to safety in the midst of all this um but yeah i didn't know uh all the extra details until later so just reading his book it was just like i got the impression like this is uh, a white person who lower level uh, is not very serious and is not even talking about the main points that are important as I gained more information it was like oh wow even with that this guy is here you should ask him some of these questions about some of this other stuff that he doesn't bring up and see see what he says see what some of his responses are and he did mention the uh, the racism some of it in the book but yeah I didn't uh I didn't I, I did not expect that he would be someone that would be really serious and talking about all this like even his I got the Kindle of his book and it is uh, like sloppily put together like just didn't strike me as a as a very elite uh, practitioner of white supremacy. So I adjusted my expectations, but I still thought that this was a very important uh, subject matter. As I said, there's a lot of content you can look. There's even uh, there's a white guy who was in Orleans Parish uh, prison at this time. And he corroborated a lot of what you heard uh, from the black female inmate at that time. And some of the other different reports uh, from black inmates, he was saying the same thing uh, that they were stuck up on uh, this bridge for days in the heat. They couldn't move. Uh, They took them to some uh, like, football field for like two or three days and they slept basically in mud because it had just rained right you had the storm and the flood and everything so they were on this field that was like mud and slush and they slept there he said for like two or three days uh he said that they would come to feed them and he said literally they would throw peanut butter and jelly sandwiches over the fence at them and they would have to scurry and pick up the sandwiches it is it is um, and it, 300 children and it's out of fact it had to be more because they said in the report the number of children that were in this uh, facility at the time of the flooding and everything did not include 
uh, black children who were being tried as adults. So you have that number on top of the who knows 300 150 200 uh black children that were relocated to this facility uh when the storm hit but uh it's just it's incredible there's a lot of other information again i would say get that aclu report if anybody can find the bbc documentary prisoners of katrina uh let me know i would love to see it uh if i get it i'll see if i can share so you all can check it out as well uh, there's a lot of detail. If you get if you have any trouble finding the ACLU report, you can let me know. Um, it's just there's a lot of, of content just on, as I said, the layers There's so much that you can study and just learn in terms of just the, the campaign of terrorism against black people that radiated out from this uh, tragedy with the breach of the levees and the storm uh, in New Orleans. But we'll have more to share on that. The shooting in Virginia and all that good stuff. We should be here uh, tomorrow. Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, We'll be looking forward to uh, wrapping the book up, uh, concluding thoughts, uh, assessments. uh, Tune in. Be looking forward to uh, hearing from everybody uh, tomorrow evening, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Compensatory call in this Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Fundraising for the summer of 2015 invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist radio thanks for all the folks who have invested the paypal button is in the top right corner of the blog uh, if you're not into paypal drop me an email and we can get you a physical mailing address uh, thanks to all the folks who uh, have invested and supported down through the years really appreciate uh, the support and hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy uh, again if we have folks that are in the louisiana area if you want to uh, share any thoughts, uh, reflections, uh, what happened, uh, not just Louisiana, other parts as well. Uh, certainly, uh, any of the folks, if you have your own memories of, of what happened with all this, feel free to share. Uh, even some of the folks who, who have shared about, uh, they, they were not in Louisiana. They were not impacted directly, uh, by the storm, but just remembering, uh, viewing all of this, I think Thomas in New York has said consistently what a traumatizing experience it was for him. Uh, watching all this and, and seeing all of the suffering of these black people. Uh, some of the other folks just writing in and, and talking about being confused. I mean, I am still learning. <laughs> Most of us here have admitted, hey, we're still learning. Um, but just when we were more confused, and I guess to the caller who was talking about, you know, dealing and dealing with other victims who are a little bit more confused, uh, it might be helpful to reflect on yourself and the times when you were more confused that can be helpful as well. I try to do that myself. Uh, but one of our uh, investors, uh, she wrote in, she was talking about uh, just reflecting on uh, Katrina and, and the way that she thought uh, before. Uh, she was saying that I did not have an understanding or interest in studying racism 10 years ago <clears throat> and was engaging in a lot of uncodified behavior as a result, mainly blaming black people for not leaving and thinking how foolish they were for putting theirs and rescuers lives in danger. How shameful it is for me to look back on that when I hear these stories now. 
uh, she goes on just talking about the devastation uh, and and what a, a traumatizing uh, thing it is. I can uh, I can I don't remember thinking that <clears throat> in terms of blaming them and what have you, but I just did not I did not understand the scope. Uh, of what was happening and just the, as I said, just the layers. I just had no idea. I had no comprehension at all. Uh, if folks have other uh, reflections on what they were thinking when they observed all this, what they initially thought, what they learned, what they were doing at that time, certainly if you were impacted directly, feel free to chime in. If you want to email and share, that's fine too. Uh, but definitely would look forward to uh, to hearing from folks. Uh, oh, we had one person. They uh, they wrote in. Let's see. Uh, I've been doing uh, some study on Katrina and are hoping you can provide uh, lessons learned section uh, to an upcoming podcast, perhaps additional codified behavior in times of disarray. It seems to me that this is a strategy employed as catastrophes will occur and they take advantage of these situations. What are the similarities between the earthquake in Haiti, the breach of the levees and Sandy, Andrew and the like? I fear this vigilante thing is only going to become increasingly more common. Uh, oh, this somebody uh, posted this uh, on uh, the Facebook group. There was another incident because I didn't know about this one either. Uh, there was a town in Mississippi where people were also trying to evacuate and they were trying to, to just get to safe, dry land. They were trying to get to this area in Mississippi and white people did the same thing. They blocked off uh, access to safety. I saw the support. I said it's uh, it's in the Facebook group. Uh, it was posted there by somebody else. Thankfully, they uh, posted a couple times. So you should be able to uh, access it. I won't read the whole thing, but I just want to see the uh, the initial uh, details. Uh Uh, oh, this is, oh, this is in the book. I don't even have to read it. I don't even have to read it. This is in the book that we're starting to read, uh, next week. This is why I picked it. This book is written by a white man. I'm disappointed about that. I really tried to find a book that was written by a black person, uh, that was accomplishing what I wanted, which was the scope 10 years of context of what has transpired in New Orleans. What happened to these black people uh, and just the colossal scope of white terrorism over the past decade around this event? This was the only book I could find that did that. And it was unfortunately written by a white man. At any rate, this is the report that I read a couple weeks ago that talked about it's 100,000 black people still gone and the racist laws that were put in place so black people couldn't move to St. Bernard's Parish uh, so that black people did not get the same amount of compensation uh, for home repairs as white people did. And they had multi-million dollar settlements for both of these practices of racism. Uh, this guy, he also uh, had information uh, about the numbers uh, of black people who were not able to get, I mean, it was just tons, 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 tons of details uh, about just the layers of white supremacy around all of this, the public housing aspect, uh, the educational aspect and going to the ch uh, charter schools. So I don't need to read this. Uh, we'll get all of this down the road. The book we're reading, it's Katrina after the flood, Gary Rivlin. In fact, I played the uh, interview he did on New York public radio, this past Sunday with Dr. Rasayan and talking about the number of black people 
uh, that were evacuated and were not able to return and just the, the racism that has been uh, a part, a huge part of all of this. I played that six minute segment, so I don't need to read it coming up. Just stay tuned. Book study session with the cows. Thanks for everyone who tuned in. Thanks uh, for sharing, calling in. Appreciate the questions, commentary. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Thursday evening. We'll be back in about 24 hours. Buckle up. If you are going to get behind the wheel, uh, do everything you can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That's an easy one. Buckle your seatbelt. And sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, they are already looking for anything, any reason to make problems for us, unnecessary problems. That's an easy one. Uh, no alcohol if you're going to be driving. Even I would hesitate if you're going to be a passenger or a pedestrian. Uh, we just want to do everything we can to eliminate easily avoidable problems, conflict. Uh, people generally make a lot of bad decisions or people frequently uh, don't make the best decisions when they are under the influence. That's something uh, we need to really make sure we're making correct decisions uh, because it's obviously white people. They are waiting for any opportunity where they can take advantage and terrorize us further. So we just can't afford to have opportunity or to have instances where we are out and about in public and not in our right mind, not clear and not able to do everything we can to preserve our black life. Sobriety would be best under conditions of war. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.